Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Kelly for History 302. Uh, today we're talking about the Coastal Wars. You know, it's funny. This lecture was supposed to just be the, the second part of the gangster rap lecture, so I was like, you know, let me, let me write down a few things. Um, ten pages and 5,000 words later, uh, this is probably going to be a much longer lecture than um, some of the other ones. Uh, however... This is on a subject I know quite a bit about. Like, my book that's coming out later this year is legitimately about this. So, um, yeah. Well, once again, it's one of these times where I know a lot, and we're just going to talk about this. But I'll try to make it interesting. I don't, I'm not going to give you my entire book, but, uh, you know, just give you some fun stuff here. So, uh, once you download the, uh, the PowerPoint, the presentation, the Google Slides, we'll be ready to go. So, let's set the stage real quick. All right, let's set the stage. About as quickly as NWA came to national attention, it really starts to drift apart. Um, Ice Cube, if you see the picture right there, you see, you know, there's Ice Cube and Dr. Dre on the left. He's, he's in the middle. The other two guys are on the right. Uh, Ice Cube leaves fairly early. Like I said, he leaves fairly early. We talked about that last class. Uh, there's some disc records between him and Easy e About basically, you know, Benedict Arnold, all that good stuff. Uh, Dr. Dre, he's not really a rapper in this. He's more of a producer, but he's... Also, not too interested in staying with the group. Um, he's not really enamored of Easy es demeanor. He thinks Easy es erratic. He thinks Easy es not a great person to be leading the group. Um, he's also been working on a particularly huge uh, solo project. He, uh, Dr. Dre's been kind of working on making beats, a different style of beats and what NWA is doing for his own solo project, um, tentatively called The Chronic. He's talking about doing that. You know, he's kind of doing it. He doesn't feel like he has that lot, a uh, lot of uh, freedom, uh, you know, artistic freedom, or a lot of uh, real space to do what he wants to, as long as he's with Easy E. Now, if you're going to go over one slide, you'll see another reason why Dr. Dre is kind of getting out of NWA or interested in doing that is because of the FWI, um, kind of like the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Uh, they don't officially investigate... Sorry, it's squeaky. They never officially investigate N.W.A. Uh, but after the success of their first album, and particularly the song um, F the Police, um, an under-director of the FBI, you can see right there, he's, the, uh, he's an assistant director, Office of Public Affairs, uh, sends the group's distributor. So they don't even go directly to the group. They actually send uh, priority records, people who distribute... Uh, NWA. This letter basically says, hey, there's been some violence against police. Your music is popular. Uh, we're not saying anything against free speech per se. Just letting you know, you know, we're aware of you. This isn't really a threat per se, but come on. It, it's pretty clear that, hey, we're watching you. You know, yes, Easy e and the others might claim it's just entertainment. It's, you know, uh, society is going too much on them for, for what they say. There's worse things out there. You can say that. You can believe that. But also, whenever the FBI sends you a letter just saying hello, um, that's something you might be wary of. So it's pretty clear that Dr. J is not too enamored of N.W.A., uh, he doesn't really like dealing with, you know, Easy e Easy e is getting more and more erratic. As I say, he later dies fairly young of AIDS. Um, Easy is not a fun guy to be around. He's also a little contentious about the amount of money that Jerry Heller is taking um, with Easy e uh, Not as much as Ice Cube. He doesn't directly leave and, like, kind of get misheard of the contract. But 
basically, Dr. Dre feels he has this ironclad contract with Priority Records. That's NWA's distributor. And, you know, he's like, look, I would like out of this, but I don't really have the means to do this. If I were to try to get out of it, bad things might happen. If you go over one slide, you'll see another guy signed to uh, to priority is uh, the DOC, real name Tracy Curry. Uh, the DOC is another rapper. He um, he is signed with priority. He He's not too crazy about what they're doing. Uh, he's not very happy about it. Uh, I could not find an older picture of them together. This is a more recent picture of Dr. Dre and the DOC. But still, there they are together. The thing is, though, uh, the DOC has got a new manager who's willing to go a lot further for his client than most are, and he's a very interesting character we're about to talk about. Go over one slide. You're going to see him right there, one Marion Suge Knight. Uh, Suge Knight, if you don't know who Suge Knight is, he's the giant one on the left. I didn't realize Dr. Dre was so tall. Man, well, there you go. Uh, Suge Knight, though, is is a large, terrifying person. He is uh, one of the most legitimately scary slash physically intimidating people ever involved in rap music. He's not even a rapper. Uh, he's an executive. But as, you know, as executive of Death Row Records, he embodies a lot of the gangster mindset. Uh, seriously, I, I cannot think of many people more gangsta than Suge Knight, even though he never raps. And actually, he claims not to be a gangster. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Marion Knight, his birth name is Marion Knight. He's born in Compton, California in 1965 in a very working-class family. Uh, quite a working-class family. Uh, you know, extremely working-class family. Did I mention they're a working-class family? They're a working-class family. Uh, they're a working-class family. Uh, his dad's like a truck driver. His mom, I think she's like a, she's either a homemaker or a teacher. Like kind of white bread, you know, just typical working-class life. Uh, his mom is the one who gives him the nickname of Sugar Bear. Uh, his, his nickname is Sugar Bear because of his sweet demeanor. He's known for being a really sweet kid. She calls him Sugar Bear. Uh, this gets shortened in time to Suge. So pretty much if I ever call him Suge Knight, shortened form of Sugar. Actually, it's a shortened form of Sugar Bear, but they called him Suge for short. Uh, he would later claim gang affiliation, uh, pretty with the Bloods. Uh, he would always wore a lot of red. Anytime you see pictures of Suge Knight, he's generally wearing a ton of red. Really getting off the persona of being involved with the Bloods. Um, while he was a child, while he was a teenager, it's very unlikely he was involved in gang activity. Um, as a teenager growing up in Compton, it's incredibly, incredibly unlikely that he actually was involved in any gangs. Uh, there were certainly gangs around Compton. Like I said, he would later claim affilia uh, affiliation with the Bloods. Uh, the Bloods would also claim him because he was big and popular and he seemed to give them credibility. But as I said, it's extremely, extremely unlikely that while he was a teenager growing up in Compton, he was ever involved in any gangs. Why is that? If you go over one slide, you will see he was a star athlete. Uh, he was a very, you know, he's a big dude. He's a large man, um, still very large. Um, he still has a side. He's lost a little bit of weight, not a lot. Um... He's a star athlete growing up in Compton. He is a all-star football player, uh, defensive uh, defensive uh, lineman, like a linebacker type person. Great star athlete. Uh, he plays ultimately plays college ball at UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Going to become important later. Uh, he he considers Las Vegas his second home. He he likes Las Vegas. He keeps a house in Vegas when he gets famous. Opens up a club in Las Vegas. 
Uh, he even plays a little pro football during the uh, 1987 replacement strike. Uh, there's, a, there's a replacement strike where basically the NFL goes on strike and they bring in replacement players for a while. Uh, he's very good at football, not quite to the pro level, though. Um, like I said, he is a very good athlete. You know, he's, he's exceptional. You know, he plays at UNLV. Very good athlete, but not quite to the pro level. Like I said, he plays for the replacement strike for a while. Uh, however, one, he plays for the LA Rams, in case you're interested. But once the strike's over, uh, he's not quite good enough to make an NFL team. He also has a few injuries, a few logging injuries. Um, I've read interviews with his coaches and, and while well, he was at UNLV. Um, they all thought he was a really good kid, really respectful player. Uh, nobody really thought of him being too involved with anything gang-wise or anything too violent. They just said, you know, hey, he's a really good football player, really nice guy. Uh, they didn't think, you know, his later career was kind of a surprise to them. So after football's over, after football's over, you know, after he, he, he can't make the NFL, um, you know, he, he's trying to figure out some, what to do with, with the rest of his life, uh, what's something he can do. He, he likes football, but he can't quite do it. Uh, he gets into bodyguarding. He gets into being a bodyguard, which is pretty natural for him, considering how large he is. Um, he's somewhere in the area of 6'3", 6'4", 300-plus um, pounds, large man. Um, not necessarily a fat man, a, a large man. He is a very large, intimidating person. Just, just a really big individual. Just large huge, massive hunk of man, just a large, like a moving mountain or something. He's just a really big dude. Um, being a being a bodyguard is, is a natural fit. That seems like something very, you know, expected for him to do. Uh, fairly quickly, he starts doing musical acts, working for musical acts, uh, bodyguarding musical acts. Uh, the most notable person he bodyguards for a while is Bobby Brown. Uh, Bobby Brown, you know, Bobby Brown, Whitney Houston's husband. Uh, he was a member of New Edition. Uh, what he he um, he, he kind of you know once he sees behind the music business a little bit he's like you know what maybe I can get into the music business. Uh, he has no talent for like singing or performing or anything, but he is interested in artist representation. He's like maybe I could be somebody's manager. You know he because as a bodyguard he hangs out with the artists quite a bit. He sees how the managers work, and he's like you know what maybe I could do this myself. You know maybe I can make a little bit more money. Maybe I can get more involved in the music business. I mean it's not like he hates bodyguarding. But he wants to make more money because bodyguards don't get paid that much. And he says, you know what? Maybe I can get into artist representation. Now, it's also during this time period where he bodyguards a music executive, uh, a music executive, just a, a generic. Um, I know he's a white Jewish executive. I don't know exactly which one it is. Uh, Suge Knight has been kind of cagey about which one it is. And the, the music executives of the time are kind of cagey about admitting if it was Suge Knight who bodyguarded for them. But one of them. Some music executive kind of tells him offhandedly, hey, you're, ta- you're thinking about getting into music? Well, let me tell you something. Make sure your artist always owns the masters. Make sure you or the artist always owns the masters. Uh, that is the master recording. Uh, whenever a, a song is made, uh, the master recording is generally owned by the record label. But sometimes if you're a big-time artist or if you negotiate for it, you can own the masters. That is who ultimately gets money for the stuff. They're the ones who get the royalties from it. Uh, for instance, if you're paying attention to Twitter right now, Kanye West is on one of his crazy Twitter rants uh, talking about he wants to buy his masters from the recording company, saying, you know, he wants his kids to own his masters, not the recording company. 
if you own the masters, basically you make the money off of it. And even if you're not the artist, if you're the one who owns the masters, you make money off of it. Uh, very famously, and you know, this is not exactly rap related, but just telling you how important masters are. Uh, there was a time whenever the Beatles masters went on sale. The, the, Beatle, the Beatles masters were on sale, basically who has the ultimate rights to the Beatles music. Um, the Beatles were trying to pull together so they could buy that themselves. They were outbid by Michael Jackson. Um, this actually put a wedge between Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney when they were still alive. And to this day, the Jackson estate still owns the rights of the Beatles masters. So if you buy, uh, if you listen to Beatles music, if you buy a Beatles album, it's actually Michael Jackson's estate that's getting the money because they own the masters. And so this music executive kind of tells Suge Knight offhand, hey, make sure you own the masters. Uh, Knight takes this one tip and runs it into the ground. He is insistent about owning his masters. He's insistent about demanding his artists get the masters. Uh, this is probably the one good tip he's given, and he really builds an empire out of it. But remember, he's primarily a bodyguard, primarily looking after other musicians. But he is starting to meet some musicians who are looking for representation, uh, who don't like their current manager, and he says, maybe I could do a better job. Uh, his first real act that he, that he signs, or is signed to him, is Mario Chocolate Johnson, who you might remember from last class. Uh, Mario Chocolate Johnson uh, feels like he's owed money, particularly songwriting money, for writing Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. And basically, uh, Mario Chocolate Johnson kind of tells Suge Knight, hey, Vanilla Ice has been withholding royalties from me. So Knight's like, all right, I'll, I'll get your money. Um, Knight starts harassing Vanilla Ice to the point, and this is this is urban legend, where he supposedly holds a Vanilla Ice over a hotel balcony by his ankles. Supposedly it's se several stories in the air. Uh, this story has been refuted by pretty much everybody. Uh, Suge Knight's like, yeah, I didn't actually do that. Uh, in reality, there were lawyers involved. There was a lot of lawyers, a lot of boardrooms. There might have been verbal threats. Um, you know, whenever you talk to Suge, he might be like, yeah, I might have said something. But he's like, I didn't hold that boy over his ankles. But he was like, yeah, you know. He, he's like, you know, Vanilla Ice was a punk and deserved to give my artist the money that was due to him. And, and look, here's it doesn't matter whether or not Suge Knight held Vanilla Ice over the uh, his ankles over a hotel balcony or not. Here's what matters. Thanks to Suge Knight, Mario Chocolate Johnson is able to get songwriting royalties. And the legend of Knight's toughness starts spreading around the Los Angeles rap scene. It's like, hey, this is a manager who's going to go to war for you. Does that make sense? The, the legends of Suge Knight's toughness grow in this time period. Because they don't know whether or not he did like beat up Vanilla Ice or not. What they do know is that Mario Chaka Johnson has songwriting credit now. This gets more artists interested in Suge Knight. It's this idea that he's the one who's going to do that for you. So that's how DOC and Dr. Dre become aware of Knight. Also, Suge Knight wants more. He's like, look, doing artists is okay. Uh, you make your own record label, that's where you get the bit real money. And he's like, but to have a record label, I'm going to need big artists. Nothing against Mario Chocolate Johnson, but they can already tell Ice Ice Baby was a one-hit wonder. And so he starts trying to find other artists. That's how he comes with, in contact with the DOC. He's basically like, hey, who's somebody else in the rap scene? The DOC is not signed to, death, to uh, death Row at this time period. It's just he's an artist that's representation. So in some point in 1991, in some point in 1991, Dr. Dre tells Suge Knight, hey, if you can get me out of my current deal, I heard what you did with, uh, with Vanilla Ice, 
that's cool. You know, you got that for the songwriting uh, lyrics. It's going to be a little bit tougher for you to get me out of this uh, deal I have with. Uh, it's an iron clad contract that I have priority. But if you're somehow able to work your magic and get me out of my deal, I assure you I will sign with your record label. Now, for, for, for Suge Knight, that's all he needs. Dr. Dre is a really big-time producer. Everybody knows he's the sound behind um, NWA. He's the sound behind the West Coast Sound. They know that there's something to be had with that Dr. Dre. It's going to be good stuff. So according to legend and also some court documents, uh, Suge Knight and a gang of either gang members or his bodyguards, one of the two, they are armed with lead pipes and or baseball bats. Uh, nobody says anything about guns, but they pretty much go to Jerry Heller, who's the guy with Priority Records, and demand that he release DOC and Dr. Dre from their contracts. Um, Suge Knight would later claim it was just aggressive negotiations. But there are court documents which affirm it wasn't just Suge Knight, there are other people with them who had weapons. Uh, not like guns or knives, but like baseball bats and lead pipes. Um, it was done as a threat. It, it was done as, it, uh, like, uh, I, Jerry Heller did not get beat up over this. I, I can assure you that. I can assure you that Jerry Heller did not, like, you know, get beat up, but, you know, and then, like, after he was bloodied with a baseball bat, he, he signed over the documents. It's just a threat. It's just a threat. And so Heller was either agreed with this or got scared, and Dr. Dre signs with Knight, pretty much forming Death Row Records. Go over one slide. I know I've been on that one slide of uh, Suge Knight with a Jerry Curl for a while. You will see Death Row Records. There's Suge Knight in a super Sugness, the giant red. That's, that is the epitome of Suge Knight right there. In 1991, thanks to the fact that he was able to get Dr. Dre out of his contract, um, Suge Knight announced the formation of Death Row Records which he claimed would be, quote, the Motown of the 90s, end quote, alluding to both prosperity and also mainstream appeal. However, unlike Barry Gordy, Barry Gordy tried to have a very squeaky clean image for himself and all of his artists. Um, Suge Knight seems to relish in the perception of himself and his artists as very dangerous individuals. Uh, as I said, he's never really a member of the gang whenever he's a kid. However, he starts dressing in blood attire, kind of letting the... Uh, let it be assumed that he's a member of the Bloods. Likewise, the Bloods themselves are like, hey, this guy seems cool. He's, he's getting us money. They're okay with the affiliation, particularly after he starts getting pretty famous. After Death Row starts getting a name for themselves, they're okay with it. But in essence, he's using the Motown model, as he says, but also the Simmons model. Uh, the Russell Simmons model of appealing to white kids with quote-unquote rebellion music, but going even further. Uh, when... when when Suge Knight says Motown, he's also talking about commercial appeal. Talking about, like, hey, we're going to be selling to black and white. Absolutely. Now, the problem, as always, and when you read my book, you're going to hear me talk about this quite a bit, is distribution. Like, you can have the greatest artists in the world. You can have the greatest rhymes in the world. You can have the most interesting music in the world. You can have Dr. Dre, the greatest rap producer possibly ever. But unless the customer is able to hear your music, it's nothing. And you're going to have to pair with another company for distribution. What's going to get CDs and records? Well, take, mainly cassettes in this time period. CDs are still coming out. What's going to get cassettes in the customer's hands? You know, manufacturing is fairly easy. But, like, getting it across the country can be difficult. It's a lot of logistics. 
which some of these smaller record labels just can't do. I mean, just think about shipping orders across the country. You're going to need a huge infrastructure. So Suge Knight has to go to various large record companies and try to get a deal. Now, a lot of these record companies are not wanting to deal with Suge Knight. Um, most companies don't want to deal with Suge Knight. Um, you know, they're upset about what he did at Priority. Um, you know, they, 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 he seems like an unproven commodity. You know, he's this guy in charge of this record label demanding the masters, even though he's really done nothing, uh, really done nothing to really prove himself for that. Uh, ultimately, he does make a deal with a guy by the name of Jimmy Iovine. If you go over one slide, you're going to see Jimmy Iovine with Suge Knight and Dr. Dre. Not sure who the white guy on the left is. He's probably somebody important. I don't know him. Jimmy Iovine is the one at the bottom. Jimmy Iovine right there is the short white guy at the bottom. Uh, Jimmy Iovine kind of takes a shine to Suge Knight. He's like, you know what? This guy is rough around the edges, but he means well. Also, the Chronic is viewed as too big of a hit to pass up. Um, you know, they, the, what they've heard of the Chronic, uh, this is like, you know, late 91, early 92. The Chronic, you know, what, what they've heard of it, Dr. Dre has been working on this for years. Uh, the sound is completely unlike anything anybody's heard before. Jimmy Iovine's like, look, this is too big of a record to pass up. Uh, Suge Knight might be rough around the edges, but I'm going to make so much money off this one album, it's worth the risk. Also, maybe I can try to clean up Suge Knight. So Jimmy Iovine for a while kind of takes Suge Knight under his wing. It's like, hey, let me teach you the way of the world. That's how you get this next picture. One of my favorite pictures of all time. This is uh, Jimmy Iovine, uh, Jimmy Iovine's like, backyard. He invites Suge Knight to play um, touch football, like you know, football in the backyard with some of his friends. Uh, Jimmy Iovine is the, the white guy in the red uh, jersey. Looks like a red 49ers jersey on the far right. You can see Suge Knight, who's uh, right there kneeling. And so basically, uh, Jimmy Iovine's like, look, I want to bring you around some of my friends, some of the guys I know, get you around a different group. Maybe you can, uh, you know, it'll help clean up your image, kind of get your bound, you know, just kind of teach you. He, he definitely sees potential in Suge Knight. He's not just like, oh, this guy's a, a thug who's never going to turn into anything. He's like, nah, you know, Suge, Suge might have some attribute behind him. Now, what's funny about this picture is the guy kneeling on the far right in a purple shirt. Now, your generation may not be able to recognize him on sight. That's okay. He, he died long before you were born. Um, he died in like 97, 98. Uh, that is John F. Kennedy Jr. That's right, the president's son. Like, you know, John Kennedy, JFK. Uh, JFK Jr., John John, as he was called in the press, was like, the sex symbol of the 90s. Everybody thought he was like this good-looking kid. He dies fairly young, actually fairly tragically in a player in an airplane crash. But uh, basically, Suge Knight is playing football in the backyard with a president's child. And not just any president's child, John F. Kennedy Jr., who is a really big deal. And what's funny about this is if you're the child of a president in this time period, you get Secret Service protection for life. So... Somewhere in this picture are Secret Service agents who are probably terrified by Suge Knight. Um, I, I, I would just love to watch, you know, the football game between Suge Knight and, and JFK Jr. Like, if Suge tackles JFK a little too hard, uh, what, what's going to happen there? That's a fun picture. Still, in, in, you know, in 92, um, that's when the L.A. riots happen. All this is kind of coming together. And what really comes out of this, which is interesting I didn't talk about last time, in late 1992, The Chronic is released. In December of 92, 
Uh, Death Row releases The Chronic, Dr. Dre's album. The album, which is, uh, you know, the reason why they start Death Row Records. It's the reason why Jimmy Iovine is willing to pair with Death Row Records. Dr. Dre's album, The Chronic, uh, it's viewed to be a big hit. It finally releases. And it's a much bigger hit than anybody can imagine. Like, by any possible metric, this is a massive hit. It is critically acclaimed. Oh, God, is it critically acclaimed. It is so critically acclaimed. It's a triple platinum seller within its first year of release. Uh, it goes platinum three times over. It is a massive seller. It's a bigger, it's a bigger hit than either Suge Knight or Jimmy Iovine or, honestly, Dr. Dre can believe. It's also insanely influential. This is, honestly, if we're talking about most influential rap albums ever, this has to be in the top five, possibly top three. You could make a very strong argument for this is the most influential rap album, period. I cannot iterate just how big this album is. Now, the main reason why this album is so influential, there's a lot of different things, but one of the main ones is the fact that Dr. Dre is using completely different beats than anything he's ever done before. This is where we really get into the G-Funk. Uh, a lot of the early rap songs were sampling disco beats, Little James Brown. Uh, Dr. Dre is using funk beats, like weird funk, parliament funkadelic, George Clinton-type beats. Uh, for instance, uh, the first, one of the first things you need to watch, uh, the first video I have on Moodle is Ain't Nothing But a G Thing. If you listen to that, you've probably already listened to it, but that is a completely different beat than anything else that was going on in rap music of this time period. It really cements the West Coast sound, this idea that West Coast rap is going to be different than any other rap. It's funky. It's kind of smooth. It's, it's kind of smooth. It's got a little bit of a smoothness and a flow that some of the other ones don't have in its music. Uh, into car culture. That's something you see a lot in West Coast rap. It's very into car culture. Also pretty violent. It's also pretty violent. Um, although the, uh, the, viol the album is supposedly about drugs, I mean, hence the title, I mean, The Chronic, I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty obvious allusion to what they're talking about. If you go over one slide, you'll see Ain't Nothing But a G Thing and what's on Snoop's hat, pretty obvious to what they're talking about there. It also glamorizes a sort of gangster lifestyle and stuff like NWA, but, but way smoother. That's the only way I can describe it. It's not as jarring as NWA. Like, if you listen to NWA, it's very jarring, very in-your-face, very aggressive. Uh, this G-Funk stuff, like, ain't nothing but a G-Thing, is way smoother. They might be talking about the same sort of stuff, but it's, it's a little bit more funky, a little bit smooth. Now, as I mentioned, uh, if you go over one slide, you will see uh, this album... This album introduced a new artist, uh, Calvin Brodus, better known as Snoop Doggy Dog in this time period. Uh, this made a superstar out of Snoop Dogg. Th this is what put Snoop Dogg on the map. I mean, Ain't Nothing But a G Thing is probably the greatest introduction of a rapper ever. Uh, his first verse right there. Um, Calvin Brodus is originally from Long Beach, so another part of Los Angeles. Um, actually comes from a fairly working-class background, too. Uh, for instance, he went to high school with uh, Cameron Diaz. Weird fact, Long Beach High. Um, but no, Long Beach Polytechnic, actually. Anyway, yeah, they, they went to high school together, so there you go. Uh, he was supposedly a crip. Uh, once again, like, like Suge Knight, it's problematic uh, how much he was actually involved in gang activity. Uh, Snoop Dogg was supposedly a crip, supposedly wore a lot more blue. Uh... 
but it's unlikely he was that deeply involved in the life. Uh, he does have a very smooth, very laid-back flow. I mean, the first verse of Ain't Nothing But a G Thing, fairly famous. It's very smooth, very laid-back, kind of in contracts with Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre does rap. He's a little bit more aggressive in his raps. It comes out a little more forced, uh, a little less natural. Uh, this is not a secret. Dr. Dre generally doesn't write his own rhymes. Uh, he has a lot of uh, ghost writers in this time period. He still does. Uh, probably his most... His longest ghost writer was Nocturnal. Uh, Nocturnal did a lot of his rhymes for over the years. Um, I don't think Nocturnal does anymore, but for the longest time, that was that was Dre's ghost writer. So you can tell whenever Dre does rap, it's it's a little... I don't want to say stilted, but it's not as natural as something like Snoop Dogg. Uh, ain't nothing but a G thing, like I said. That is Snoop's coming out party. I- ironically, this record makes Snoop a bigger star than anybody else. Like... Before Snoop was even really signed or heard of, like, The Chronic made him a superstar. He's on several songs of the album, but particularly ain't nothing but a G thing. Uh, When you watch a video, notice how Snoop Dogg never really looks at the camera. Like, he's a kid in this time period, and you can tell he's, like, kind of awkward about the camera. He's kind of shy. He's like, okay, should should I do this? Should I not? It's interesting. Uh, When this happens, when, you know, with the success of Snoop Dogg, um, with nothing but a G thing, the fact that he's kind of become the main star of the of the chronic record even though it's dr dre's album uh there is uh basically they go to the studio immediately like okay this guy needs his own solo album uh basically the, the solo album is going to be called um doggy style right there you can see the, the 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 cover of doggy style of the uh the uh, the cartoon the sexualized cartoon dog i suppose uh, that's like a poodle wearing a thong so okay there you go um, it, it comes out. It is a massive hit. But, but right before it comes out, uh, Snoop is involved in an altercation that results in the death of somebody. Uh, is he involved with it? Is he not? That's one of those gray areas. Uh, what does come out is that he does have to go on trial. Ultimately, he does beat the case. Uh, when Doggy Style comes out, though, it's an even bigger hit than The Chronic. Uh, this goes four times platinum. Um, it cements Snoop as one of, if not the biggest rapper in the world, period. Like, '93, you know, whenever this album came out, like, I was around. Snoop Dogg after G Thing was the biggest thing in rap, period. Even around here, like, even, even in South Louisiana, which we'll talk about South Louisiana when we get later, um, he was viewed as the biggest rapper, period. Uh, Snoop Dogg. Even before this album came out. And when this album came out, that's what all anybody could talk about. This was a huge album. You know, the fact that he had an impending murder case made him a little bit of a you know tougher guy. So that maybe something to it. Uh, behind the scenes, as we'll talk about, he is petrified of this. He is he is terrified of the idea that maybe he might have to go to jail for a murder. He claims he never did it. Uh, things are looking incredible for Death Row in this time period, but with the rise in profile came protest. And none were more consistent than those of one Cynthia Dolores Tucker, over one slide, better known as C. Dolores Tucker. She made it her personal mission to bring down Death Row. Now, a little bit about her background. Uh, C. Dolores Tucker was born in Philadelphia. She made her name during the Civil Rights Movement as an older but bona fide member. Uh, she was like in her 40s and 50s whenever the, uh, whenever the uh, Civil Rights Movement was going on. Um, you know, she's a little bit older than the Dr. Kings of the world, or kind of a contemporary, a little bit older. I want to say she was born in the, like, the early 20s. Dr. King was born in 29, so they're, they're contemporaries. She's seen as of an older generation, though. 
Uh, she does a lot of work in her home state of Pennsylvania to raise the profile and opportunities for women, and particularly women of color. Um, during the 1970s, she was Secretary of State for the state of Philadelphia, and she's actually the first black woman to hold that post. Like, she has a big political uh, appointment. She is a legitimate, bona fide member of the Civil Rights Movement, does a lot of stuff in Philadelphia. Uh, she, you know, she her, her political career kind of ended short. There was a little bit of a scandal she had about using government workers for paid gigs. Ask me about that in class if you want to know more about it. Uh, but she kept a decent profile afterwards. Like, it wasn't a, a massive shame. It wasn't like she was shunned by the black community. Uh, she became one of those, like, kind of talking head figures you see on news shows or, like, panel discussions. She'd be on Donahue or Oprah or something. Uh, talking about a lot of black issues in general. Just, you know, the plight of African Americans. Kind of this post-civil rights movement, civil rights thinker. Uh, what's going to be good for African Americans? What's going to be good for women in particular? How can women of color have more opportunities? Now, she hates rap music for a whole bunch of reasons. She does not like rap music. A lot of different reasons why she hates rap music. Uh, the main reason is for misogyny against women. She says it's very misogynistic. We'll talk more about misogyny when we get into video vixens. Uh, it says it generally degrades black people. She's like, you know, we're not putting our best foot forward with it. Uh, she does not like them. Uh, she feels that rap music is too violent. It's too sexual. A big one is that it, it lacked morals. In essence, she's kind of the embodiment of what I've been talking about earlier in the semester of like this older civil rights generation's disdain for hip hop. This idea that, you know what, rap music and, and the hip-hop generation, this younger African-American culture, they just don't they just don't know better. Uh, think of somebody like Bill Cosby before all the rape stuff came out. Um, you know, Bill Cosby for the longest time was like, you know, I'm you know, this nice, clean African-American who got an education, and the young generation just needs to pull up their pants, that sort of thing. Now, most rappers, if they were aware of her, made fun of her and her, their lyrics— uh, she was viewed as an old fogey who was out of touch, not a real threat. Uh, if anything, sometimes they relish whenever they attacked her because it might raise their profile and make them more enticing forbidden fruit. Talked a little bit about that with Two Life Crew, the fact that like, sometimes I welcome the controversy. But if you go over one side, you're going to see she really set her targets on death row. Death row really became her, her target du jour. Uh, she thinks that Death Row and Suge Knight are the worst of the lot. It's like she is specifically pointing them out as a bad example about what's going on with rap music. This confused Knight. Uh, Knight, if you see interviews with him, he's like, of the time period, he's like, what, what's so bad about us? Why are we the ones getting all this negative attention? Why are we the special ones? Why do you hate Death Row? There, there's so many more people. Why? Uh... Why does she pick Beth Rowe? Part of it is the popularity of it. I mean, they become super popular with Snoop Dogg and uh, The Chronic. Uh, another, it actually has to do with their imagery. If you go over one slide, you're going to see the uh, the logo for Death Row Records. Uh, that is somebody in the electric chair. That is a prisoner in the electric chair, you know, Death Row. Uh, you know, coupled with all their songs, basically she's like, she's she said that Death Row is insinuating that all... African-American men are, you know, criminals and gangbangers and they're horrible to women. And you're justifying every bad stereotype uh, that white people have about us. Like every negative stereotype about African-Americans, you're reaffirming. Not only are you reaffirming them, you're getting rich off of negative stereotypes. 
You know, you're making the entire world view young black men as dangerous people, and basically you are legitimizing discrimination. Now, her first attempts to get a boycott or response out of death, death Row went absolutely nowhere. Uh, no real recognition. Uh, she kind of uh, laughs off. You know, Suge and some of the members of Death Row kind of laugh her off. They're like, okay, whatever. They don't really respond. So when they don't respond, she gets kind of creative. Uh, she does something very creative. She buys stock. Uh, Death Row, she can't buy stock in because it's a private company. But Time Warner and Sony Music, who are with Interscope, who are with Jimmy Iovine's company. Uh, Jimmy Iovine, he's the one who basically is the distributor for Death Row through Interscope Records. Uh, they're both tie- their parent company is Sony and Time Warner Music. Those are publicly traded companies. And so she does something. You got, I got to admire her ingenuity for this one. She buys stock in both those companies. Once she buys stock, she is a stockholder. Now, you may not be familiar with the stock market, but if you're a stock, if you own stock in a company, you are allowed to go to their shareholders meetings. Like every quarter, every year, um, basically companies by law, they have to have meetings where they tell all their shareholders what's going on, here's what you can expect, you know, here's what's going on in our company, here's our earnings, things like that. You don't have to go to them. Uh, for instance, I own some stock in various companies. They usually send me reports. They always invite me to these things. I, I never go because what's the point? Uh, and it's also, it's, uh, but I don't own a ton of stock by any, by any means. It's not like I'm a gazillionaire on stock. Don't get it twisted. But like, you know, I, I get paperwork every so often. It's like, hey, you know, here's our here's our uh, our shareholders meeting. Come on down if you want to. Most people ignore this. Uh, C. Dolores Tucker does not. She's like, I've bought stock in these companies. I'm a shareholder. Uh, during the shareholder meeting in May of 1995, she pretty much goes off on death row. She's like, hey, Time Warner and Sony, are you familiar that one of your you know, child companies, one of the companies that you're affiliated with, is making this horrible music, and I'm going to bring this big boycott against me, and I've been responding, you know, I've been sending you stuff for you know, years, and you know, I haven't responded, but now that I'm a shareholder, I can get access to you whenever I want. Uh, this really, she really got to pressure the top brass at uh, Death Row's distributor, that'd be Time Warner and Sony. This really upset Suge Knight. This, he thought this was over and above. Remember, she is not buying uh, stock in other companies just so that she could humiliate them. Uh, but what Suge Knight does next makes T- Tucker even more upset because... If there's one artist that Tucker does not like, and for her while it's become her mission to really demonize, it's Tupac Shakur. And a few months after this, you go over one slide, you'll see the see Dolores Tucker talking bad about Tupac. Uh, a few months after this, in October of 1995, Suge Knight pays the $1.4 million bail for Tupac Shakur, who was on jail on charges of sexual assault. Uh, there are conditions to this deal. Uh, basically, if Suge Knight pays for the bail for uh, Tupac, Tupac has to sign with Death Row and record three albums. Now, by doing this, this is going to throw gasoline on an already volatile situation, which was the East Coast-West Coast Wars. But before we get into that, we got to talk about Tupac. So if you go over one slide, you will see Tupac Shakur. Uh, Tupac Shakur, full name Tupac Amaru Shakur. Uh, he was born in Manhattan. He was born in Manhattan, so New York, 
to Afini Shakur in 1971. If you go over one slide, you will see Afini Shakur on the bottom left. Sorry, it's me. Uh, Afini Shakur is a member of what was known as the New York 21. The New York 21, yes, I'm well aware there's only 18 in that picture. Just whatever. Uh, the New York 21, the Panther 21, they're a group of black revolutionaries affiliated with the Black Panther Party. They were charged with conspiring to blow up New York buildings. They're also charged with conspiracy to overthrow the government. They were charged with a lot of different things. There was 150 things they were charged with. Um, in actuality, they're just trying to do some protests, but there was talk maybe they were getting violent. Absolutely. Uh, she is arrested and charged on 150 different crimes. This trial goes on for two years. The trial of the New York 21 goes on for two years. Ultimately, they are acquitted. Uh, during the course of the trial, she gets pregnant. She gets pregnant. About a month after the two-year trial ends, she gives birth to her son, who is Tupac. I wish I could find a picture of his mom, like, you know, on trial, pregnant, because that was a thing, was basically, wow, she's pregnant, you know, she's got, she's got a baby, they're talking about throwing her to jail, charging with treason, 150 different crimes. Now, his, his name is interesting, uh, if you go over one more slide, you're going to see Tupac Amaru II. Uh, that is who his mom names him after. Uh, Tupac Amaru is, um... Uh, he was a descendant of the Incas. Like, you remember the Incas, like, you know, old conquistadors conquered Incas. Uh, the last Incan emperor was called Tupac Amaru. Uh, one of his descendants, several hundred years later, Tupac Amaru VII, uh, sorry, Tupac Amaru II, uh, leads an unsuccessful rebellion against Spain and Peru during the 18th century. So a couple of centuries after the Incas were gone, an Incan descendant by the name of Tupac Amaru II Tupac Amaru I was the last Incan emperor, has an unsuccessful rebellion against the Spanish. So basically, that's who she names her kid after, this idea that he's going to be a revolutionary, he's going to fight the power, he's going to overthrow the, you know, the, the masters, he's going to overthrow the people who have conquered us. This is an instance of putting great expectations on a child through their name. Uh, you see this, for instance, with Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Martin Luther is the guy behind the Protestant Reformation. By naming your child Martin Luther, you're like, hey, this guy's going to be a great religious leader. Does that make sense? Like, the name itself has great expectations. Uh, however, as a kid, Tupac Shakur was actually fairly artistic. Yes, he does have a Black Panther mother who does really push, you know, Afrocentrism, makes him read a lot of, like, Black Panther books, a lot of Black Thought books. However, sorry for the cough, he is more interested in dance, more interested in music. He does musicals, he does dancing, <coughs> does ballet, things like that. Uh, when he's 13, his family, his mom and his sisters, they move to Baltimore, uh, where he attends like a, a musical high school, like an artistic high school, if you go over one side. You'll see him and one of his best friends in high school, Jada Pickett. That's right, Jada Pickett, the same one who married uh, Will Smith later on. They're super good friends. Like, he writes poetry about her. Uh, neither would claim that it was romantic. Neither would claim that it was romantic, even though there was talk that maybe it was romantic. I mean, you don't write a poem about a girl unless you got some sort of feelings for her. But uh, they would remain pretty good friends throughout their life, very good friends, very close friends throughout their life. 
nothing romantic ever really happened with them, theoretically. Theoretically, another, nothing romantic ever happened with them. There's talk that maybe if Tupac would have lived, maybe something would have happened between the two of them. We don't know. Uh, later, however, he spends the rest of his high school time in the Bay Area. Uh, his mom and his sisters, they moved to the Bay Area. They moved to Oakland. Uh, this is where he's introduced to hip-hop. He is introduced to hip-hop in the Bay Area in Oakland. Now, he's also very interested in dance, and because of his interest in dance, he becomes originally a backup dancer for an Oakland-based rap group called the Digital Underground. If you go one slide, you're going to see that, well, Tupac and one of the members of the General Underground, that's Shock G, the Digital Underground is a much bigger group. Um, they're very much in the party fun rap, uh, very, very much in the party fun rap, particularly with their first album of Sex Packets. Uh, yeah, they do do have some more serious stuff. They become famous though for the fun stuff. Um, do what you want is what do what you like is their first single. Their first big one is the Humpty Dance. Um, if you haven't heard the Humpty Dance, listen to the Humpty Dance. It's a fun song. Um, you know, he he's a backup dancer on the Humpty Dance. The video I have y'all watch is from the Arsenio Hall show, where basically it's Shock G doing the Humpty Dance, and you're going to see Tupac. He's the one in all red, acting as the backup dancer. Uh, later on, he's la- a little bit later on. Uh, this is like 1990 when the Humpty Dance comes out. It's around 91, 92. Uh, and actually, it's around 91. Whenever they start letting him rap a little bit, uh, when they first started letting him rap, uh, his earliest stuff is kind of party rap, but other stuff as well. In fact, Tupac in general can really be a conundrum in terms of his personality. If you go over one slide, uh, he is capable of being very understanding and introspective. You know, he does songs like. Um, Put your, keep your head up. Uh, Brenda's got a baby is one of his famous ones, famous early ones that are not just about like you know thug life or violence or sexuality, uh, but he also seems to really relish the kind of violent stuff, kind of the gangster stuff. Uh, this is a a shot. This is not a gangster one by any sense. This is um, I get around. I don't. I, I didn't have to make y'all watch. I get around. That's one of his earlier hits. Is I get around. Basically talking about uh, you know. Ladies and sex and how sex is fun, that sort of thing. That's some of your early Tupac. And, and like his first album really does kind of get involved in all that. His second album is, is kind of his coming out one. Um, he he put, starts putting out albums in 1991. Kind of a medium success. Um, he's not the most critically acclaimed or not the most popular. He's well known enough like within the rap world. The mainstream world doesn't know too, too much about him at this time, at this point in time. Um, I'm not saying he's a small rapper. Like, people know of him, but he's nowhere compared to, like, the Dr. Dre's and Snoop Dogg's of the world. He's he's way smaller. By the time we get to 1994, he's got a decent acting career. Uh, he's got a fairly decent acting career. That is... He does a couple movies. He, he likes arts. I mean, that's something that never really changes. He does have an interest in the arts. He does have an interest in acting. He does a couple movies. Uh, he also has a couple brushes with the law for various things. Um, he's able to beat most of these cases. Go over one slide. Hang on one second. He's able to beat most of these cases. Uh, but there's one case he's never really able to beat. One case he, he just really can't, uh, he can't seem to beat. Um, it's the accusation of rape by a woman he had uh, previously had sex, sex, sex with back in 1993. Um, basically the story is that he met this woman and their first, uh, their first sexual encounter was consensual. 
Uh, apparently, they had a consensual sex encounter their first time around. Um, he invited her to come back to his hotel the next day. When she got there, uh, he was there with some of his friends and basically uh, kind of forced or coerced her into perform- performing sexual acts on him and his friends. Uh, so that's that's where you kind of get into the gray area because he's like, it wasn't rape because our first time was consensual. But then uh, she's like, I didn't want to do this stuff with the, other, with the friends. And then he was like, well, she didn't refuse. And she was like, well, I was you know kind of forced or coerced. Like I said, this case hung around for a while, uh, and it kind of seemed to be a damper on him. Like, it kind of seemed to be a damper on his limit. Remember, he's not the biggest rapper in the world. He's not the richest rapper in the world by any stretch. Uh, you know, this is the scene that's kind of preventing him from going higher in the rap world. By the time we get to late 1994, uh, he is looking at a prison sentence. He's looking at a fairly lengthy prison sentence. It could be a couple years. Um, his legal fees are getting very high. Like I said, he wasn't so high profile as to be super rich. And he's in New York in late 1994. In fact, if you want to go over one slide, on November the 29th, 1994, um, we're going to have to put the pin in the story for just a second because we have to talk about what happened that night. On the night of November 29th, 1994, Tupac is in New York. He's in New York. He's trying to get some guest verses to pay some legal bills. Uh, you know, there are recording studios in New York, but there's also plenty of recording studios in New York, particularly for rap music. <coughs> Sorry, a lot of rap is based in New York. And so he's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to pay the bills, trying to record a couple songs, record some verses, make some money to pay the bills. They don't pay a ton, but why not? They pay something. So while he's at a studio, he starts getting a lot of pages from his manager. He starts getting a lot of pages from his manager and other people telling him, hey, you need to go to this particular Times Square studio, Quad City Studio. He's like, hey, you need to go to the studio. Uh, somebody wants you to do a guest verse. They're going to pay you seven grand to do it. At first, Tupac's kind of hesitant. Then he starts getting even more and more text, not text, pages, beepers at this time period. They don't have texting at this time period, but they have beepers. Tons of beepers telling him, hey, go to the studio. Go to the studio. It's going to pay you seven grand, which, you know, isn't a lot, but it's not nothing for the studio. So basically, Tupac, some of his entourage decide, okay, cool, we're going to go to the studio after pestering, being pestered. Uh, this is a multi-story studio in Times Square. Like, the actual studio itself is on one of the higher stories. I believe it's on, like, the fourth floor of this building. Uh, it has a lobby right in the front. Uh, Times Square is not quite as safe as it is nowadays. still had a kind of a view of crime. Once Tupac gets into the lobby, once he gets into the lobby of the studio, remember the studio's on the fourth floor, has to go through the lobby on the ground floor to get in, while he's waiting to be buzzed up, um, somebody tries to rob him. Somebody tries to rob him and his entourage. Basically, somebody supposedly from the street comes out with a gun, says, hey, give me your money, give me your jewelry. Uh, Tupac starts resisting. Tupac starts resisting, you know, kind of threatening him, kind of taunting him. He basically says, you're not going to do that. Uh, when Tupac starts you know, resisting him, the robber shoots him several times. Uh, this robber shoots Tupac Shakur several times. Uh, shoots him in the head, shoots him in the hand, which both of which are very bad. Ironically enough, the one where he shot the worst is in his groin. He is shot all up in his man parts. Like, he takes several bullets to the groin area, to, like, the junk. That's scary. Um, <laughs> getting shot in the genitals does not seem appealing by any stretch. 
Um, he, he's actually very seriously injured there. He has internal bleeding. Uh, he has internal bleeding within his groin. Uh, while he's being wheeled off to by the EMTs, they do call the ambulance. They do like they're going to bring him to the hospital. Uh, he ta- he basically gets a famous picture taken of him. If you see this picture where it says November 9th, 1994, you see right there two Tupac Shakur. You know his face is bandaged because he's been shot in the face. One arm is down because he got shot in the arm. He, he's got tons of bandages around his around his crotch because he just shot, got shot in the groin. Given the middle finger. Now, when this picture first came out, um, this is seemingly a middle finger to the camera. It's this idea that he is saying, you know, F the world, this kind of like gangster rap mentality, like I'm such a bad man. I'm saying, you know, F you to the world, kind of defiant, you know, people shot me and I, I'm just, my, my spirit is invaluable. But that's not who Tupac was flipping off. Right next to the camera, right next to the camera, was one Christopher Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G. Wallace, who was in the studio, who was in another studio on the fourth floor, was the one who called Tupac to do a guest verse. There was another rapper. But, but basically, Christopher Wallace, Biggie Smalls, the Notorious B.I.G., was in studio, and when he heard about the commotion, he came down to see, and when he saw that it was Tupac, he felt bad, and he, when he was looking at Pac, Tupac felt, oh my God, you set me up. He felt that his old friend, a little more than acquaintance, but not a best friend, so a friend, had set him up. He thought it was all unusual that he was being pestered to come down to the studio right the second for seven grand, which is not nothing, but wasn't like a ton of money. Tupac feels he's been set up. And even though he is seriously injured, like he goes to the hospital with internal bleeding, which is one of those things if they don't treat, it can kill you. Within three hours of going to the hospital, he checks himself out, goes to court the next morning for sentencing. He's in a wheelchair, and he gets sentenced to several years of prison. Now, he's, he, he would be able to be bailed out if somebody pays a $1.4 million bail. If somebody pays $1.4 million, he could be released on bail. You'd be put on probation. However, remember, he got himself shot over seven grand. He doesn't have $1.4 million. And even though he's a rapper, he's not the most uh, successful rapper, and a lot of record companies aren't willing to deal with him because, hey, he's got a rape charge. He's got a sexual assault charge. Tupac is going to jail, and he feels livid and betrayed by Biggie Smalls. Now, if you go over one more slide, uh, we're going to talk about who is Biggie Smalls? Who is Puff Daddy? Who are the other great faction in this war? And it's really led by Bad Boy Records and its leader, Sean Puff Daddy Combs. Uh, Puff Daddy is the one who, quote-unquote, discovered uh, Biggie Smalls. He's also the one who really is the guy behind his uh, career. Uh, much more hands-on than Suge Knight is when it comes to leading a record label. Uh, now, Sean Combs was born in Harlem in 1969. Uh, his dad was an associate of Frank Lucas. Uh, Frank Lucas was a pretty notorious... Uh, drug dealer, general gangster in the Harlem area during this time period. Uh, have you ever seen the, uh, the Denzel Washington movie, American Gangster? That's Frank Lucas. Uh, anyway, when Combs was about two years old, uh, his dad was shot and killed while he sat in a parked car. Basically, his dad was in a car. His dad was shot, killed. Um, uh, almost assuredly had something to do with Frank Lucas. Almost assuredly had to do with Frank Lucas, who was a big-time deal. Uh, 
Combs's mom was not crazy about all this violence for obvious reasons. I uh, thought it was too dangerous. So basically, he moved, she moved um, Combs and his sister uh, to Mount Vernon, New York, upstate New York. Well, outside of the city. Very suburban, uh, super subver- suburban. Very white, very middle class. That's really where Sean Combs grew up. That that was really the neighborhood that he came from. Yes, he had like street bona fides because his dad was around uh, Frank Lucas, but he had a very middle class upbringing, very suburban upbringing. Um, really, like the only black kid in most of his classes. Uh, he went to Catholic school up in Mount Vernon. Uh, really became known as a liaison with his white classmates to the hip hop culture, which was which was growing at this time period. Uh, he was kind of hailed as like, hey, here's here's the guy who knows about hip hop. Uh, oftentimes he was the only white, he was the only black person in a room full of white people. That's kind of his upbringing. Uh, now, when when he graduates high school, he decides he wants to go to college at Howard. Uh, Howard is the big, it's the mecca, it is the the Harvard of HBCUs. I guess uh, he was kind of tired of being the only black kid in a in a white world. He wanted to go somewhere else, so he decided he wouldn't go to Har- Howard. Um, Howard is in D.C. Uh, he still has his, you know, he's still staying at his mom's house in New York. And so, you know, he goes to Howard for a little while, but fairly early on, he gets an internship at a record label. And he spends a lot of time uh, on the train between D.C. and New York. There's a train that goes from D.C. to New York. They're not that far, actually, if you just, you know, it's a, it's a couple-hour train ride. Uh, he is an intern at Uptown Records. Uptown Records is Andre Harrell's company. Uh, if you go over one slide, you're going to see a picture of very young Sean Combs slash Puff Daddy. Go one more, you're going to see Andre Harrell and Puff Daddy. Uh, Andre Harrell, he just died this past year. Died fairly young. Fairly, fairly sad situation there. Um, I think he was like in his late 50s, early... Late 50s, I believe, is how old Andre Harrell was. Uh, Andre Harrell was a early signee to, De- uh, to Russell Simmons. Uh, he had a little rap group called Jekyll and Hyde. He and another guy was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. Uh, he was one of Russell Simmons' early acts signed to Simmons Management. I don't believe they were ever on Def Jam. They were never very big by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Andre Harrell decides he's going to start his own record label. He calls it Uptown Records. Uh, but he still has a fairly friendly relationship with Russell Simmons. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're very uh, congenial. They, they like each other quite a bit. Uh, so Andre Harrell has his own record label, which is Uptown Records. Now, even though he starts out as an intern, uh, Sean Combs is like he's going to outwork everybody. He's going to be really big. He develops, and he gets into AR, which is uh, artists and repertoire, basically discovering new artists. Uh, he helps discover a couple artists for Uptown. Uh, the, the two biggest, most notable groups he discovers are, well, one's a group, one's an individual is he discovers Mary J. Blige and also Jodeci. He brings both of them to Uptown's attention. Now, there's also an apocryphal story about uh, Sean Combs, which kind of illustrates his whole demeanor. Um, it's an apocryphal story, but there might be some grand truth in it. Uh, both sides of the story have had various versions of it. Um, like I said, this is something I've written a book about, so I'm not going to get too deep into it. But it has to do with his first meeting with Russell Simmons. Uh, you know, Russell Simmons, Def Jam, probably the most important person when it comes to the hip-hop culture, with the modern hip-hop culture. You know, he is Russell Simmons. Um, we didn't get into this when we talked about Def Jam. But as, like, the 80s went on, Russell Simmons uh, got clean uh, after, like, after his split with, um, with Rick Rubin. 
Uh, he starts to get clean. He starts to like get more into like Eastern philosophy and meditation. Um, he's now vegan. Like he doesn't drink, uh, you know, any alcohol. He doesn't eat any meat. And so while he's on this hell kick, he he becomes obsessed with the stairmaster. Russell Simmons is obsessed with the stairmaster. He thinks like it's the best thing. Uh, he loves the stairmaster. He's going to climb on the stairmaster all day. Loves it quite a bit. And so Andre Harrell wants to introduce um, Russell Simmons to his new intern, uh, Sean Combs, or Sean Combs knew that Andre Harrell had a relationship with Russell Simmons and wanted to meet him somewhere around there. So basically Andre Harrell's like, hey, I'm going to facilitate this meeting between uh, Sean Combs and Russell Simmons. When they meet, Russell Simmons is on a Stairmaster. He's on a Stairmaster, and like they start talking about music and stuff, but that's not what Russell Simmons wants to talk about. What Russell Simmons wants to talk about is a Stairmaster, and how much he loves a Stairmaster, and how great he is of a Stairmaster. And at some point during the conversation, Russell Simmons starts bragging about how he's so good at the Stairmaster, and he could outlast anybody, including the younger Sean Combs. Uh, Russell Simmons in this time period, he's about a good 10 years older than Sean Combs, and he's like, hey, you know, you're, you know, you're this little 18, 19-year-old kid, I can outlast you. Even though you're young and, you know, you're a young kid, I can stay on you longer on the Stairmaster. And Sean Combs is like, okay, whatever, I don't really care. And then Russell Simmons says, let's make this interesting. Let's make a bet. Let's make a bet about this. Um, a pretty decent amount of money, maybe a few thousand dollars. It's money that Sean Combs does not have. Basically, they, they decide to have a little contest. Who can last longer on the Stairmaster? Russell Simmons or Sean Combs? Uh, now, Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, whatever you want to call him, he needs this money. He needs this money pretty bad. Um, his call, he, he needs money to fix up his car. At this time period, his car is broken. He doesn't have, like, the, let's say it's five grand to, to fix it up. He doesn't have any money, let alone this amount of money. But he makes a bet with Russell Simmons, okay, I can outlast you on the Stairmaster. And also, Sean Combs had never been on a Stairmaster before, ever. This is like the first time he'd ever seen a Stairmaster, but he figured it out. And according to legend, according to this apocryphal story, uh, they, they start their little contest, and it goes on for like an hour or more, and actually Sean Combs wins. Uh, Puff Daddy outlasts Russell Simmons on the Stairmaster, and he gets the cash he needs to fix up his Volkswagen. Now, is that a real story? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, if you... If you talk to either guy, I've read interviews. Um, I haven't really talked to Puff Daddy before. I've had, I've had limited conversations with Russell Simmons, um, but we didn't talk about this. Um, he's, it might not have been quite like that, but the, the kind of metaphor here, the story behind it, is pretty clear. It's the idea that Sean Combs is going to go even further than anybody to reach his goals. He's going to out-Simmons Russell Simmons. He's going to go further, work harder, really push this whole thing for music. Now, Combs ultimately uh, quits Harvard. He uh, Howard, sorry. He ultimately drops out of Howard uh, right after his sophomore year uh, to work for Uptown full time. Uh, you know, it started out as an internship. However, he was working so hard. He's bringing an artist. You know, he discovers Mary J. Blige. Uh, he gets Joe to see uh, involved. Uh, starts developing more artists, also starts getting in more into event promotions. Uh, starts really promoting events, really promoting um, parties, the sort of party promotion thing we've talked about, very normal thing to do. Now, he also becomes acquainted with a young man by the name of Christopher Wallace, who is somewhat interested in getting into music, 
maybe part-time. He's just ser- interested in what's all's in there. Uh, he comes to Uptown looking for maybe to do some recording, and basically Sean Combs is kind of taken with him. If you go over one slide, we're going to talk about young Christopher Wallace. A uh, little bit about him. Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G., uh, he's born in Brooklyn in 1972, so he's a little bit younger than Combs, about three years younger than Combs. Uh, he's raised primarily by a single mother, uh, Miss Wallace, his single mother. Um, she's a Jamaican immigrant. In fact, both of his parents were Jamaican immigrants. Uh, his dad left the picture whenever he was fairly young, uh, pretty much to be left uh, raised by a single mother. Miss um, Wallace did not like the streets. Uh, you know, crack is starting to come in in this time period. She's not too enamored of all about what's going on on the streets. Uh, not you know enamored about what's going on with crack, drug dealing, and she really wants her kid to have like the best chance he can. Kind of keep him off that path. Uh, she works like multiple jobs to keep him in Catholic school. Uh, keep him in Catholic school. Keep him in private school. You know, make sure that he stays inside. Doesn't go too much outside. You know, doesn't hang out in the streets too much. Doesn't get involved with drug dealers. And as a kid, Christopher Wallace, you know, Biggie Smalls, whatever you want to call him, uh, he's a you know, he's a kind of a chubby kid, not even kind of a chubby kid. He's a he's a he's a he's a rotund little boy. Um, he's bookish. You know, he's a smart guy, very very uh, very good writer, uh, very good student, an, an exceptional student. Like he's getting awards for his writing um, at his school, at his Catholic school, which his mom is working multiple jobs to keep him in, try to keep him off the streets, that sort of thing. Uh, that, that's how he is as a, as a smaller child. As time goes on, though, uh, he, the streets just can't be resisted. Um, he About the time it's like middle school age, you know, 11 or age 12, uh, he starts getting involved in street life. He starts hanging out more outside the house, uh, much to the dismay of his mother. Uh, when he's like 12, 13 years old, he starts selling drugs, mainly uh, some small drug dealing, a uh, little bit of uh, pot dealing, nothing too major. Um, none of these rap guys in their past, I mean, they do sell some drugs, uh, but it's never, like, really, really big time. I mean, he's a, he's a 12, 13-year-old, like, smelling, selling marijuana to his classmates. It's, it's not, like, big time here by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he had also does start rapping a little bit this time, kind of for fun. He, he just, you know, rap comes out. Uh, he listens to it some, he, you know, he's, rap's getting more popular, he's aware of it, he doesn't do it full-time, it's not the main attraction, drug dealing seems to be the main attraction, it seems more interesting to him. Uh, ultimately, he does drop out of high school, even though he remains a very good student throughout all this, he, he always gets good grades, he's always very studious. By the time he gets to high school, he asks his mom for him to go to public school, she lets him go for a while, then he ultimately drops out. Uh, starts spending more time on the streets, doing more drug dealing. Uh, once he drops out of school, his drug dealing gets a little bit more serious. Uh, he starts getting charged on various cases, get arrested for like possession with distribute uh, with sorry with intent to distribute. Also, a couple of uh, like you know assault charges. Does uh, a couple of short stints in jail. You know, a couple of month long, maybe a year long stint here or there. Uh, nothing too major. He does start rapping and doing a couple demos. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see him when he's a little bit older. Uh, he gets the name Biggie Smalls, Notorious B.I.G. He's not even called Biggie because he's a very, very large man. 
Um, unlike Suge Knight, who's like large and intimidating, like, you know, he's 6'3", 300 something pounds, but it's mainly muscle and he's a former NFL player. Well, you know, a replacement NFL player. Uh, Biggie Smalls is just fat. He's just, he's just a, you know, he's just a rotund individual. He always has the name Biggie. Uh, he starts rapping a little bit more, starts doing some demos. If you Google around, you can find, uh, you know, Biggie rapping on the street corner. Not a major ambition for him, but it's enough to get him noticed by Combs, who is working at Uptown in 1993. Uh, in 1993, Combs was like, hey, I want you to come in for, for Uptown. Uh, also in 1993, though, uh, Combs and Harold start butting heads a lot more. It's pretty much uh, Combs starts really wanting to get more um, authority. He's trying to make more decisions. He wants to go further and further. Uh, Harold is just like, I, I can't have this. You know, I'm the head of this record label. You can't be the head of this record label. Uh, basically, Combs is fired. Combs is fired kind of amicably. Like, it's pretty much just like <coughs> Harold knew that Combs would never be happy being the number two. He, he would always try to overthrow him. So he's like, look, if, if, if I just fire him now, he can make his own record label. Do you know, Let him sink or swim. It was a lot of, there was very few hard feelings. It was just like, this is not a good fit for him. So Harold fires Combs. Combs decides to make his own record label uh, called Bad Boy. Uh, Bad Boy is the record label. You can see right there, that's the logo. Uh, basically, Sean Combs is like, hey, I want to bring these artists over with me. Most of them do not come with him. Uh, Jodeci, Mary J. Blige, they stay with Uptown. However, uh, Biggie Smalls, Notorious B.I.G., Christopher Wallace, hasn't really recorded anything with Uptown, hasn't really signed much of anything with Uptown. He's the one person that goes with Puff Daddy to uh, Uptown. Sorry, to, to Bad Boy. He leaves Uptown, joins Bad Boy uh, with Puffy, with Puff Daddy. By the way, I should mention Sean Combs gets his name Puffy, or Puff Daddy. Uh, whenever he's a kid, apparently whenever he would get angry, he would start huffing and puffing, and that's how he got the name Puffy. Now, why does Christopher Wallace, why is he willing to take this chance? Why is he more interested in rapping in this time period? Well, uh, he starts to realize maybe drug dealing is not going to be a great full-time thing because he's found out that his ex-girlfriend is pregnant with his baby. Uh, he, he finds out he's got, got a daughter on the way pretty much right after he signs with, uh, with Bad Boy, right after he leaves uh, Uptown and joins, uh, joins Sean Combs of the new record label of Bad Boy. He has a daughter. Uh, he has a daughter, and he's like, you know what, uh, I got a baby now, you know, maybe drug dealing's not a great thing to be doing, you know, I, I gotta find something a little bit more stable for my daughter, you know, I gotta be a good provider. Remember, he, he's raised by a single father, and he's like, even though me and, you know, this, even though me and my daughter's mom aren't together anymore, I wanna be more involved in my daughter's life, I wanna provide her the stuff I wasn't able to have. And so he's like, okay, maybe I'll do this rap thing, it's gonna be a little bit more secure than drug dealing. Uh, Wallace is Bad Boy's first signee. It's kind of their biggest star. Uh, Combs is as good of his word. He promotes Wallace to pretty much anybody. He thinks Wallace can be something really big. Uh, the early, even though he's their first signee, nothing really hits. Uh, the first big hit song that Bad Boy has is Flavor in Your Ear uh, by Craig Mack. Craig Mack does Flavor in Your Ear. Um, that is not a that is not Biggie Smalls. However, Biggie Smalls does appear on the remix. He does appear on the remix. Bad Boy is really put on the map by Flavor in Your Ear, which is Craig Mack. However, Biggie Smalls appears on the remix. 
Now, during this time period, in August of 1994, um, Biggie Smalls meets somebody. He meets he meets um, a gospel singer who was signed to Bad Boy. You know, she, she's a goody-goody gospel singer, comes from a pretty restrictive family. Her name is Faith Evans. They meet at a photo shoot. They meet at a photo shoot. Um, it's like love at first sight. Uh, they marry her. Uh, he marries her like a week later. They have a very quick courtship. Uh, basically, her name is Faith Evans. She is a gospel singer, goody-goody. You know, very much not like him in any stretch of the imagination. You know, he's very large and obese and large. Did I mention he's large? He's not the best-looking fella, not trying to be mean. Uh, he's just a very large individual. Uh, very dark skin. She's the exact opposite. She's very light-skinned, uh, very refined, quote-unquote. You know, she's a church girl. He's a street kid, that sort of thing. She's tiny. Like, she's like a third or fourth of his size. Uh, they get married. You know, it's a very quick whirlwind, whirlwind courtship. They get married. Uh, a couple days after that, uh, Juicy is released. That's really his first really big solo hit. The first big solo hit that Biggie Smalls ever has is Juicy. Uh, it's a weirdly nostalgic record. I'm sure you might have heard it. I don't think I, I don't. I didn't have that on um, the Moodle, but you can you probably know it. It was all a dream. I used to wear read Word Up magazine. That one, Juicy. Uh, it's also a weirdly nostalgic song. I mean, this is coming out in '94. It's nostalgic for both like his drug dealing past, but also the early days of hip hop, which at this time is about 10 years old. So once again, you're seeing the sense that there's yet another new generation of rappers out there. It's almost as though we're in our third generation of rappers. Uh, I, I should also mention both these guys, but particularly Biggie Smalls, particularly the Notorious B.I.G., uh, he's a genuinely talented lyricist, like, genuinely one of the best lyricists that ever were in rap music. Like, his, his flow, his way to do words, um, really good. It, really good. Uh, sometimes people might say Two Bike has the better, uh, the better subject matter, uh, however, I think Biggie Smalls is probably the better flow, better lyricist, but that's just me. But Biggie Smalls genuinely talented. However, there is some tension between him and Combs about their direction. If you go over one side, you'll see Juicy. Um, Combs really wants to make um, Biggie Smalls into like less of a gangster, less of a drug dealer type person, less talking about his past. Wants to make him a lot more commercial friendly. Uh, kind of wants them to be kind of the uh, more pop-sounding, kind of fit into the milieu of the, like, the overweight lover, uh, which is weirdly a thing in rap music in this time period. You think of somebody like Heavy D, uh, just this kind of kind of persona of just like, you know, he's large, but he's a ladies' man, uh, kind of romantic, singing songs for the ladies, talking about how he's a love machine type of thing. And you, you can really see a tension in his first album, which is um, Ready to Die. Uh, you know, you, you do have songs like Juicy, you have other songs which are a little bit more violent, well, well, Juicy isn't particularly violent, but other ones which talk a lot more about drug dealing, but then you have something like Big Papa, if you go over one side, you're going to see Big Papa, Big Papa's also one of the music videos I have you watch, uh, Big Papa is very, you know, it, it talks about he's a, you know, he, he, he's, he's rich, but he's also, he loves you, he, he loves it when you call him Big Papa, you know, he's talking to the ladies, this sort of thing. Um, he's, you know, he's also fairly friendly with Tupac during this time period. If you go over one slide, uh, they are on friendly terms. I, I wouldn't say they're best friends. Uh, they are on friendly terms. They're more than acquaintances, less than friends. Um, you know, Tupac is giving him some advice here and there. 
because you know he's like, hey, Tupac's been in the game a little bit longer than I have. You know, what, what can you tell me about what to do? Who should I sign with? That sort of thing. Uh, supposedly, Tupac is the one who encourages um, Biggie to stay with with um, with Puff Daddy, saying, "Hey, Puff Daddy's the one who's going to get you money." You know, if if you're in this for money, if you want to give your daughter the better life, you know, Puffy's going to get you on the radio more often. Uh, they they do a couple remixes together, nothing too major. They're they're like I said, I mean, it's not uncommon in rap music to do a lot of remixes of different people. Um, but they're they're not like super besties, if that makes sense. So the night of November 29th, 1994, Wallace and his crew were actually at the same recording studio, the quad record stu- recording studio that Tupac got called to. They're just in a different studio. There are multiple studios there. It wasn't like, um, it wasn't as though Biggie was the one who called him. It wasn't to do a remix on a Biggie song. It was just basically Biggie was in the same studio. Uh, the studio is on the fourth floor. Uh, Tupac gets shot in the lobby. Whenever uh, Biggie hears about this, whenever they hear about what happened in the lobby, you know, someone comes up like, hey, Tupac got shot in the lobby. He comes down, and that's where Tupac flips him off. That's where you get the famous picture of Tupac being wheeled in the ambulance after being shot in the face and the hand and the groin, flipping off Biggie because he believes Biggie set him up. He believes Biggie set him up. Why does he believe Biggie set him up? Uh, There's really no real one reason behind. I mean... Probably because of how strange it was to be getting so many messages demanding he go to this recording studio, like in the middle of the night, seemingly, for just seven grand type of thing. Uh, This, however, really means war. This kind of begins the war. This begins the East Coast-West Coast War. Uh, Give her one side, you'll see war. So it starts out as some resentment between two artists who were actually pretty friendly. It grew into something larger that pretty much dominated the genre and really framed a large generation of this hip-hop during this time period. Now, to be honest, there has been contention between New York and West Coast for a very long time outside of rap. I mean, take your pick. There's always been a little bit of contention, a little bit of a rivalry. Uh, Within rap, though, uh, what kind of originated this, even outside of these individuals, but the kind of resentment in rap music? Um, New York was generally seen as arrogant by people outside of New York, as though, like, they were the originators Nobody could ever beat them, you know. Hey, it doesn't matter if you're a good rapper somewhere else. Unless you're from New York, you don't have legitimacy. You know, it's the idea that nobody can outdo New York. Um, and you got to remember, even within New York, they can be elitist. Like, rappers from, um, you know, Brooklyn were not viewed as legitimate as rappers from the Bronx. This sort of thing. Um, L.A. Was, was viewed by outsiders as being disrespectful. Uh, basically, they, they're they're too much of an upstart. They're they're being uppity, if you will. They're they're not respecting the originators. They're being you know disrespectful. Uh, they're not showing the proper reverence for the older heads of the genre. Uh, not very serious, I should mention. Not very dangerous. Plus, as we've well established, like beefing and battling are very well established parts of the hip hop culture. Like. Battling, having a beef, you know, battling each other. Uh, that's a very normal thing in rap music. That really shouldn't be seen as anything too unusual. Now, this doesn't really come to public awareness until the 1995 Source Awards. The Source Awards were a award show. Uh, the Source magazine is, is a hip-hop magazine. Uh, basically, it's just your general old award show. You know, you get some awards, do some, uh, have some speeches, have some performances. 
Um, this was in New York in August of 1995. Tupac is in jail already. Uh, basically, during acceptance street speech for soundtrack of the year for Above the Rim, uh, which was done by Death Row, uh, Suge Knight makes a not-so-subtle dib at Puffy, at, at Sean Combs, at Puff Daddy. Uh, I, I gave you the clip right there. I gave you the clip right there. You can watch it. Uh, basically, this is seen as overly aggressive by Suge Knight, but it's Suge Knight. He's known to be overly aggressive. Uh, basically, he kind of, you know, he, he comes up wearing his red. There's some various booze because he's a West Coast guy on the East Coast. And basically, he says, any artist out there that wants to be an artist and wants to stay a star and doesn't want to worry about having the executive producer being all in the videos, all in the records, dancing, come to death row. This was a not-so-subtle attack at Sean Puff Daddy Combs. Because Puff Daddy was all over the videos for anything Bad Boy related. Um, generally, Suge Knight, not even generally, Suge Knight did not rap, period. Suge Knight did not sing, period. Suge Knight did not appear in music videos for, uh, for Death Row. Uh, he's definitely like part of the public face of the company. He's definitely the public perception of the company, is Suge Knight. However, he is not somebody who really raps or dances or does anything like that. Uh, Puff Daddy, that's all he does. Like, even this time period, uh, Puff Daddy doesn't really rap in this time period. He doesn't really do anything. There's an old joke about, like, you know, how's Puff Daddy still in business? I don't know. I didn't know that wearing a suit was a skill. That's an old joke they said back in this time period. Uh, this, this, was, this was met by booze. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you'll see other pictures of it. Uh, for instance, later on, whenever um, there, there's some booze and basically Snoop Dogg's like, hey, uh, Y'all booing us? Y'all booing Death Row? Y'all, you know, the East Coast doesn't have any love for the West Coast? Y'all don't have any love for Dr. Dre? Y'all don't have any love for uh, for Snoop Dogg? All right, well, I see how it is then. Okay, I see where we are, this type of thing, kind of berating it. Uh, later on in the evening, though, whenever Combs comes out, uh, he's a lot more conciliatory. I will say one thing about the East Coast-West Coast feud. Um, for their part, Bad Boy, like Sean Combs and Christopher Wallace and Horace B.I.G., they really are not instigating this. They try to downplay. Uh, for instance, later on the night, whenever Puff Daddy comes out, you see, you'll see him sitting there with Biggie Smalls. Uh, Puff Daddy says, look, I'm the executive producer. A comment was made about a bit earlier, but check this out. Contrary to what other people may feel, I would like to say that I'm very proud of Dr. Dre, of Death Row, and then Suge Knight for their accomplishments. All this East and West, that needs to stop. This is where most of the general public really comes into awareness of there is a beef going on. This gets a lot of interest. You know, people getting booed at award shows, that's something people are cared about. Because this didn't stop. This fanned controversy. And controversy, if you don't know, creates cash. There's all sorts of cash out there, all sorts of cash to be made. You know, people are going to spend money for something that's viewed as controversial, particularly where there's tension. They're hearing about all this East Coast, West Coast feuds. Now people feel like, hey, I need to buy records to support my side, this sort of thing. And with all this money being thrown around, uh, Suge Knight felt that he had the ultimate ace in a hole. A very, very pissed off Tupac who hates the, who hates the East Coast, who's in jail in New York, could be sprung out of jail for just $1.4 million. Pennies compared to the amount of money that was being made through sales in this time period. So Suge Knight's, okay, look, I, I can get this guy out of jail for $1.4 million, you know, get him out on bail, uh, you know, get him on probation, this sort of thing. 
We're making tons of money because it's the 90s in the music business. I pay $1.4 million. This feud is going big. I can make something out of it. And that's what he does. A couple months after, a couple months after the uh, the Source Awards, Suge Knight signs Tupac to a Death Row record deal. Basically, here are the conditions of the deal. He would pay Tupac's bail. He'd pay $1.4 million bail for Tupac. He'd also give his uh, Tupac's mom some money for the Saver house. Basically, her house was in uh, fear of being repossessed. Suge Knight would pretty much pay off the mortgage for Tupac's mom. In exchange, Tupac would record three albums. Tupac would not get a lot of money off these albums. It was not a very uh, generous deal. Um, however, it was basically, you get out of jail, you get to come to California, you, you get to record for Death Row. Tupac, of course, agrees. You can see, if you go over one slide, Tupac getting out of jail. You know, Suge Knight sent, him, sent a limousine to pick him up, fly him out to Los Angeles, get him to Death Row. Within a week of his release, Tupac was in Los Angeles and records a new song, his, his comeback song, California Love, which you have on the video. Uh, California Love was uh, Tupac's comeback song, a very pop-friendly record, uh, by far his biggest pop hit in life. Uh, by far, California Love was Tupac's biggest hit while he was alive. Uh, it was released in late 1995. It's, uh, it's very much within the uh, Dr. Dre sound, uh, you know, kind of samples an old uh, funk record. Uh, very catchy song, super, super, super catchy song. Uh, you'll watch the video, kind of does a Mad Max thing where it's, they're in this kind of post-apocalyptic um, California Thunderdome-type place, and it's Tupac and Dr. Dre, you know, talking about how awesome California is. Not necessarily a diss against the East Coast, not necessarily a diss against the East Coast, but kind of seen within this milieu. Like I said, that was released in late 1995. Uh, also, whenever Tupac is... Whenever, whenever Tupac is released, uh, this really pisses off C. Dolores Tucker. Uh, she starts like trying to get rid of Tupac by any means necessary. And so uh, he also has a couple rhymes against C. Dolores Tucker as well. Uh, the thing, though, even though Tupac was happy to be free, even though Tupac Shakur was very happy to be free, very happy to be out of jail, very happy to be on the West Coast, uh, he's still got a lot of venom for Wallace and Combs to a lesser extent. Primarily for Wallace. Like, he's got a lot of venom. And, and as much as he relished his new fame and freedom, like, he's, he's way more popular out of jail than he was before, thanks in large part to this controversy because of all the East Coast, West Coast stuff. Uh, he really keeps acting in very aggressive and kind of erratic, dangerous behavior. Like, for somebody who just got out of jail, you know, on a multi-million, well, not multi-million, but a million-dollar-plus bail, million-dollar-plus bail, um, he's acting very, very erratic, very erratic, very aggressive. Uh, this culminates in two things. Two things happened in 1996. Two things happened in 1996. Uh, the first thing is in February 1996, you go over one slide, you're going to see the... Oh, sorry. Oh, I guess I should mention this, too. Uh, first of all, Tupac starts hanging out with Suge Knight a lot. Um, he becomes, like, Suge Knight's... Like, he accompanies Suge Knight to everything, everything. Like, Suge Knight is all over the place with Tupac. 
Uh, they they kind of make quite the pair. You know, Suge Knight is large and imposing. Uh, Tupac is, you know, smaller, good-looking, thin, you know, d- doesn't wear a shirt, has the abs to pull off not wearing a shirt, that type of thing. So, you know, now Tupac is really affiliated with Suge Knight. He's really affiliated with Suge Knight, as are some other members of Death Row. But as you can see in the 1996 uh, cover story for Vibe magazine, Live from the Death Row, very famous album, uh, very famous magazine cover, probably one of the most famous magazine covers, period. Uh, it talks about what's going on within Death Row Records, within the actual record itself. It paints a very um, interesting picture. It kind of exaggerates um, you know, Suge Knight's wealth. It exaggerates Suge Knight's uh, penchant for violence. Kind of, you know, exaggerates the uh, gangsterness, I suppose, of uh, of Death Row's uh, office complex. You know, it talks about how, like, you know, the, the, the complex is loaded with, like, red, and there's blood members hanging out everywhere, and there's, like, you know, pit bulls and, you know, guns, and it's kind of this combination of, like, violence, you know, with all the weapons and danger, but also money and sex, because they talk about, like, oh, there's, like, stripper poles, and kind of this thing where it's almost like an exagger- like a like an adult's Disney World, where you got guns and money and strippers and like this place where everybody wants to hang out or whatever really exaggerates that um even though suge knight in this article he's talking about in this interview how like this is motown he's like we're the motown of the 90s um he's exaggerating the amount of danger with it exaggerating just how scary he is exaggerating the amount of money that they're being made um, Tupac is appears as the main instigator in this article. It talks about how like Tupac is really the one bad mouthing everybody, kind of the hype man, kind of playing into Suge's stuff, really hyping up Death Row. He's talking more about Death Row than anybody else. Uh, meanwhile, like the two really big stars on Death Row, the ones who kind of made Death Row, uh, they don't seem to amuse with anything. Uh, for instance, Dr. Dre, you can tell he's not happy with Death Row. Uh, it's not too surprising that after this he leaves to form his own record label with Jimmy Iovine. Um, he is not too amused with what's going on with Death Row. He's like, he's like, yeah, I don't get involved with all the gangster stuff. I, I just make my music. You know, I, I just kind of work here. I don't get involved with Suge stuff. I don't mess around with gangs. I, I just kind of, I do more of my recording at my house now. Actually, you can tell he's not amused by anything going on at Death Row. Uh, meanwhile, Snoop is also trying to downplay his involvement. Um, he there there is a possible murder sentence from that murder. Well, that not a murder, but that guy who died a couple years prior. We talked about uh, sentencing is still a possibility. He might he might be getting a, a conviction for actually no, it's a different thing. So he's kind of afraid about he you know he he he's afraid that he might be you know put away for, sentence for murder. So he's not too keen about being associated with anything violent as well. And you can tell that both of them, both Dr. Dre and, and Snoop Dogg, are, are not too crazy about what's going on with Death Row. They're not too crazy about the East Coast, West Coast stuff. Whenever they're asked about it, they really downplay it. They're just like, yeah, we just work here. We record hit songs. Uh, we want to record more hit songs. We don't like violence. Uh, however, Tupac and Suge Knight are the ones who are like really up playing this. Now, this is also felt in 1996, in June of 1996, with Hit 'Em Up. Uh, Hit 'Em Up is a the other video I have for you. I think it's the second to last video I have. It's Hit 'Em Up. This is one of the most aggressive, if not the most aggressive, diss songs of all time. Like, it's a 
bad one. Bad in the sense of just like this thing goes hard. Like Tupac is brutally disrespectful to uh, to Biggie Smalls of this one, pretty much by name. Um, if that if that was too subtle, uh, the the music video for this has uh, Biggie Smalls and Puff Daddy impersonators. Also, a Little Kim impersonator. We'll talk about Little Kim in a second. Um, like there's impersonators of them in, in the music video. The lyrics though are just brutal, uh, just brutal. Um, in particular, I mean the first line is "I f your b, you fat mother effer." Uh, that's literally the first thing Tupac says as soon as the song starts. He says basically, "I f your b, you fat mother effer." Uh, likewise, about the third or fourth rap is basically you claim to be a player, but I f your wife. Um, okay. There's dissing and stuff in rap songs. There's beefing. There's battling. Then there's accusing somebody of basically saying that, hey, I had sex with your wife. That's hard. That's, that's a, that is a brutal diss. That is, that's beyond a diss. That is like blatant disrespectful territory. Uh, it's not just on the song. On several occasions, uh, Tupac claims that he had had sex with Faith Evans, who was kind of estranged from Biggie Smalls during this time period. They didn't have a kid together. Um, however, Biggie Smalls was having a bit of a affair with Little Kim, who's a rapper who's affiliated with him, part of the Junior Mafia. Uh, Faith Evans and Biggie Smalls, they, they always had a very contemptuous relationship. Um, however, it is incredibly unlikely that Tupac and Faith Evans ever did anything for a number of reasons. Uh, first of which is opportunity. Uh, for instance, there was a picture that they, they that Tupac kind of presented. You can see it on the top left of like him and Faith Evans together, seemingly in a very uh, you know intimate, not intimate, but just like you know handholding moment, uh, like as though they're by themselves. Uh, you can see the picture under it, which was the exact same place. There was like eight people there. So yeah, you're not doing anything too intimate with eight people there. Also, uh, Faith Evans was way too much of a goody goody, like. She was a very straight, laced, religious person. Uh, she hated the fact that, like, you know, Biggie was cheating on her. Uh, very unlikely she'd want to do some retribution. Still, the insinuation is brutal. And it's crazy insulting to say, I effed your B, okay? I, I, I effed your wife. Like, that is yeesh. Uh, for their part, however, Bad Boy and Wallace really don't respond too much. Um, seriously, like pretty much in all this bad boy is not really responding to it. Biggie Smalls is not responding. Like he genuinely does not respond to the accusation that, you know, Tupac had sex with his wife. Doesn't even say anything about it. No, there's no, it's no back and forth battle. This is not like a battle we'll talk about next week. This is straight up. Biggie Smalls like, okay, yeah, whatever. I'll take it. Um, it's almost un unavoidable that there was going to be bloodshed, but um, it was still pretty surprising when it happened. Still pretty uh, surprising that it, that it ended how it did. Uh, a few months after it hit him up, in early September 1996, actually September 7th, 1996, uh, Suge Knight and Tupac go to Las Vegas together for a Mike Tyson fight. Um, 
like I said, Suge Knight and Tupac are doing more stuff together. Dr. Dre is not interested. Snoop Dogg's afraid of being of doing anything which might violate his probation, which might get him sentenced to jail. Uh, however, uh, Suge Knight feels that, you know what, Vegas is a good place to go. Um, Suge Knight feels that he's going to be protected there because he's like, he has a club there, he has a house there. He also considers it a second home because, you know, he played football there at UNLV. Considers it a, you know, a decent place to be. He, he figures he'll be safe. Uh, they go to the fight. Um, you can see, actually, if you, if you click on the last video, Suge and, Suge and Tupac with uh, Tyson after the fight. Uh, basically, you can see after Tyson wins the fight, which he wins very quickly, it's like a minute and a half in the first round, um, you know, Tupac and Suge run up and congratulate him. It, it's, it's one of the last things Tupac ever does, actually. Because after the fight, they're kind of mulling around the lobby of the MGM Grand. The fight was at the MGM Grand. Uh, they're kind of mulling around, uh, waiting to go to Suge's club, uh, Club 662, which is elsewhere in Vegas. Uh, they're getting changed, you know, getting out of their, uh, their, their wear for the... Uh, for the fight, putting on different clothes. They're just, you know, they're just mulling around the, the, the lobby, waiting for their cars to come. Uh, somebody in their entourage spots another individual. And they're like, hey, there's the guy that tried to rob me earlier. Uh, basically, he claimed, uh, somebody in their entourage, names get kind of hazy in this, but uh, somebody in their entourage says, hey, there's that guy who tried to jump me earlier and steal my death row chain. Um, very common in rap music with rap labels for people with a record label to be given a chain with the record label's logo on it. He's like, hey, here's the, there's a guy who, who tried to steal my, my chain. Tupac and, and Suge Knight are both there. Uh, you can see, if you go over one slide, you'll see MGM Lobby, September 7, 1996. Uh, both participate in a beatdown. Both participate in a beatdown of this person who supposedly tried to rob one of their friends earlier. Uh, this event was caught on camera. This is problematic because both of these guys, both Suge Knight and Tupac, are on parole slash probation. And doing something like this, which is considered assault, might violate it. Where we get into rumors and stuff here is supposedly the guy that they beat up was a crip of some sort who might have done caught in a retaliation very quickly. We don't know what exactly. Here's what we do know. Uh, after this beatdown, they didn't really think too much about the legal issues. They weren't really worried too much about it. Uh, the group has decided, okay, let's go to Suge Knight's club. Let's go to Club 662. If you go over one slide, you're, you're going to see the last photo ever taken of Tupac alive. Um, Suge is going to be driving in the car. They're all going off to the club. As they're driving down Las Vegas Boulevard, which is like the biggest... It's the strip. It's the, it's the big one in Vegas. Um, a Cadillac pulls up to them. And basically, pulls out, the driver pulls out a gun, shoots several times into uh, Suge Knight and Tupac's car. Uh, both are hit. Tupac is hit several times. Uh, Suge is hit once or twice. Um, basically, they, they go to the hospital immediately. Uh, Tupac is hurt very bad. He's put almost immediately into a medically induced coma so that he could stabilize. Uh, ultimately, though, he does die of his wounds about a week later. About a week later, uh, Tupac dies of his wounds after he, after being put into a medically induced coma. Lingers for about a week or so. He dies. Uh, Suge Knight is not injured very badly, not badly whatsoever. Uh, a lot of rumors exist about his death, if he is dead, possibly survived. Um, 
makes it all seem very serious. You know, the fact that somebody is dead now because of this rap song beef. Uh, you know, something which they didn't think is going to go that 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 hard. They didn't think it was going to be that serious because, like I said, there are tons of beefing in rap music. That's a very normal thing to do. Generally, people don't die of rap beefs, but now that's happening. Now, this, uh, if you go over one side, you're going to see some of the memorials to Tupac. You know, he was only 25 years old. I should mention that. Uh, Tupac was only 25 years old when he died. A lot of murals and stuff get made to him. Uh, he kind of gets deified in a sense. Like, uh, he does some more posthumous albums, that sort of thing like that. A lot of rumors about him possibly, possibly surviving. Kind of becomes like a James Dean figure. A James Dean, Marilyn Monroe type figure. People who die, stars who die too young type of thing. Now, this really messes with Christopher Wallace. This really messes with Biggie Smalls. Uh, he does have some lingering affection for Tupac. Remember, they were friendly before. Um, he also did not think it was that serious. He, he's like, I can't believe Tupac died. He's like, you know, I know he claimed all that stuff about, you know, doing my wife, but maybe that's just something for album sales, that sort of thing. Um, as I mentioned, um, Biggie Smalls has got a new son. He's got a new child with Faith Evans, who just got born. He's also got another album coming out. If you go over one slide, Life After Death. Uh, Life After Death was going to be his second album. It was going to be a bit more popish than Ready to Die. Uh, his first album was a little bit more street, or whatever you want to call it. This one was going to be a little bit more popish. This one is going to be the one that was really going to get him ingrained into like the mainstream. I should also mention during this time period, like after Tupac dies, but before Biggie Smalls' own death, he's in a fairly serious car accident. He's in a fairly serious car accident, which like totally destroys his leg. Uh, like, you know, breaks his leg in multiple places. Uh, he is on a cane for the rest of his life. Uh, he is a large man, too. So, like, he can't put a lot of weight on his leg, and he's got a lot of weight to put on his leg. So pretty much for the rest of his life, which isn't that long, uh, he is on a cane. Now, as part of the promotion for this new album, uh, Biggie Smalls and Puff Daddy travel to California for promotion. Uh, they also go with some other members of the Junior Mafia. That's kind of uh, Biggie Smalls' friends and other rap crew. Uh, other bad boy artists go too. It's mainly to be a promotional thing, mainly to do a bunch of press events, uh, go to a couple of award shows, very normal thing. Uh, Biggie Smalls does hire a little bit more security for this trip, mainly because he's worried about retaliation. He's like, even though I had nothing to do with Tupac dying, uh, there's some idiots out there who might think I have something to do with Tupac dying. You know, they listen to Who Shot You Too Much. You know, Tupac thought all this bad stuff about me. I hope other people don't think that about me as well. I, I should also mention he's got a new single, Hypnotize, which is pretty popular this time period. His lead single for um, Life, After, Life After Death. It's called Hypnotize. Um, it's played a couple of times in California. It's pretty popular. So he feels a bit more secure about it. Well, the night of March 8th, 1997, uh, you can go over that. Uh, basically, Sean Combs and Christopher Wallace, Biggie Smalls, they leave the Soul Trains Awards. They go to an after party. They're in L.A. It's a nightclub. At the nightclub, they play Hypnotize a couple times. Uh, it's a very warm reception. He feels fairly welcomed. He, he kind of, you know, lets his guard down a little bit. He's like, okay, maybe things are better. You can see in the pictures. Uh, that's him. At, you know, the last day he's alive. Those are some of the last pictures of him taken at that nightclub. 
Uh, there he is with uh, with Puff Daddy. There he is sitting there. You see him holding the cane. Like I said, he had to be on a cane for the rest of his life because of how bad his leg was messed up during the car crash. So the club closes. It's very early in the morning, you know, 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, their entourages, their respective entourages, are, are going to leave. You know, uh, Tupac, not Tupac, Tupac's dead. Biggie and uh, Puffy are going to be in separate cars. They each have their respective entourages. Uh, they're going to be going somewhere else, maybe the hotel. Uh, in, in a, it's a weirdly similar situation to what happens with Tupac. Because like Tupac, um, Biggie Smalls is riding in the passenger seat. And basically, at a stoplight, somebody pulls up to them. Bang, 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 bang. Shoots several times. Uh, unlike Tupac, uh, Biggie Smalls is pronounced dead almost immediately. Uh, he does not linger for a week. He, he, he is uh, killed almost immediately. Uh, when he gets to the hospital, when he gets to the hospital, they pretty much pronounce him dead at the scene. Uh, this kind of ends it all. You can see one more. You give over a slide. There's some of the uh, tributes to Biggie. Uh, unlike Tupac, there really are no like rumors of Biggie being alive somewhere, faking his own death. Um, with Tupac, there's a lot of that. Part of that has to do with Tupac's whole persona, the whole Machiavelli thing. Uh, he did some songs which made it sound like maybe he was going to fake his own death. There's this idea that maybe he didn't like uh, Suge Knight too much, which is weird because, man, he seemed like he liked Suge Knight a lot. Uh, we're going to talk about the aftermath for a little bit. In the aftermath, uh, Suge Knight tries to keep Death Row going. Um, if you go over one more slide, you're going to see aftermath. A couple things happen. The first is aftermath. Uh, literally, aftermath entertainment, after the, the new record label. Uh, that is where basically... Dr. Dre has said, you know what, I, I'm sick of this, I, I'm done with Suge Knight, you know, ironically, if you remember at the beginning of the lecture, uh, Dr. Dre was the reason why uh, Suge Knight ultimately first made Bad Boy Records, not Bad Boy, first made Death Row Records, was because of Dr. Dre, getting Dr. Dre away from, from a record deal he didn't like with uh, NWA and Priority. Uh, basically, Dr. Dre says, you know what? I I'm kind of done with Death Row. I'm done with the shenanigans. I don't want to be involved with all this violence. That that's not my shtick whatsoever. Not my thing. And so he makes his own record label, Aftermath. He makes his own record label called Aftermath. It uh, doesn't take really much talent uh, with him, but it's kind of a big deal because Dr. Dre is viewed as like the hit maker. He's the producer. He's the one who's really going to help the record label. Really going to help the record label. Uh, he's the one who has viewed the, the, the success behind Death Row, and now he's gone to form Aftermath. So with Dr. Dre gone, uh, Suge tries to keep Death Row together, tries to maybe do something, capitalize off Tupac's death. Um, problem is, he really can't beat the perception that he's a very violent person. And his downfall actually has to do with that fight he got into with Tupac right before Tupac died. Uh, remember that fight, you know, the, the you know, jumping the guy who supposedly tried to rob, rob one of their entourage of their death row chain? Uh, that violated Suge Knight's parole, and it got him sentenced to nine years in prison in late 1996. So within a few months of basically Tupac being shot, uh, trying to maybe capitalize on Tupac's death, Suge Knight is in prison. Uh, he stays in prison for quite a while. He stays in prison quite a while. Uh, we're, we're, I'm going to talk a little bit about Suge Knight next week because he's kind of a connection to next week. Um, I will tell you this. Suge Knight has since gotten out of prison, and now he's back in prison. Uh, a couple years back, he, 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 he straight up murdered a guy on camera. Um, 
he was at he was in line at a fast food restaurant, like a Jack in a Box or something. Shug Knight is in a car. Apparently, somebody said something to him that he didn't like, and so like while the guy's walking out of the drive-through, Shug Knight literally runs over him, like in front of cameras, and doesn't act like it's a big deal whenever he runs over somebody and kills him. That's why Shug Knight's in prison now. Uh, Shug Knight going to prison caused a mass exodus of people leaving death row. Um, not Snoop Dogg, who we're going to talk about in a second. Snoop Dogg wants to leave, however, his contract doesn't let him. A lot of folks who could leave Death Row do leave Death Row in this time period. I believe now Death Row is owned by like Hasbro or something, like like some weird toy company owns them now. So go figure. Uh, the, the the Death Row name is really not used that much anymore, though. Now, although Suge Knight personally was not able to capitalize on Tupac's name for album sales, uh, don't don't get it wrong. Tupac released a bunch of albums. They really tried to capitalize off of his name. Uh, that's nothing compared to what Sean Combs was able to do with Christopher Wallace's death. Uh, he used that to catapult him into superstardom. Like, pretty much Puff Daddy as a solo artist comes because of his quote-unquote grief, of his quote-unquote best friend, really catapults him into the public conscious. Uh, he doesn't just capitalize off of Christopher Wallace's death. Um, it's only after Biggie Smalls' death that the album comes out, Life After Death comes out. Massive hit, mainly because of the, the prestige of the death. Uh, he also starts capitalizing on of it off of various reasons. Whereas if you go over one side, you're going to see I'll Be Missing You. Uh, that is done at the MTV Music Awards Live. It later becomes a song. It's a cover of the Sting song, Every Breath You Take. And it's Puff Daddy and Faith Evans and a choir singing about how much they're going to miss Biggie Smalls. Now, here's the thing. I'm sure he did miss him. This is not like, you know, I'm not like decrying anybody. We each grieve in our different ways. But you get how it's a bit different whenever, like, you're saying, I'm the star now. Does that make sense? It's one thing to be like, hey, we're going to defer to the great other one. But it's like, nah, we're going to defer to the, you know, to, to me now. And really, Puff Daddy becomes a center of bad boy. Uh, Puff Daddy really becomes a center of bad boy. Uh, he himself becomes it. He's a problematic rapper. Um, he, not really much of a rapper. Other people almost certainly write his rhymes. Um, it's really seen in what becomes later known as shiny suit rap. Uh, probably the best example of this is something I I can't believe I didn't give you a link on the videos. Uh, Moodle, I'll probably have to do that. Uh, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Uh, Mo Money, Mo Problems. It was a song that Notorious B.I.G. Uh, recorded while live. However, the music video was done after Biggie Smalls had died. This is the epitome of shiny suit rap which really is embodied by Puff Daddy and kind of is the late 90s in rap music for the most part. Shiny suit, flashy, big, expensive, over the top. Um, y y you'll see there's like fireworks. He's literally in a shiny suit. He and Mace are in a wind tunnel. Oh, I should mention that. Um, Puff Daddy uh, kind of promotes, quote unquote, another rapper by the name of Mace. That's M-A, dollar sign E, Mace. Um, it used to be called Murder Mace, but then they called him Mace with a dollar sign to make him more pop-friendly. Uh, kind of promotes him to best friend. He's like, all right, cool. Now Mace is my, is, my, is, my, is, my, is my number two. He's my new Biggie, even though Mace is like a fraction of Biggie's size and raps completely differently. No offense to Mace. Mace is a genuinely nice guy. Uh, later became a pastor. I think he's still a pastor now. Uh, Mace's flow is nothing compared to Biggie's. Like, Biggie is so much more of a rapper than Mace is. Mace has a very uh, simple flow. Biggie's much more complex. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to... I'm going to put Mo Money, Mo Problems, the video up. 
uh, ha- you have to watch it. Watch it all. Just how it's basically it's elevating this kind of very shiny rap, uh, very pop friendly, very commercially friendly. Uh, Puff Daddy is known for like advertising specifically to white people, kind of being the ambassador to hip hop culture that he was in high school with his white friends at the Catholic school. Uh, you're going to see like this video. It's so pop friendly, but it's also theoretically an homage to Biggie Smalls because Biggie does his verse too. And it's, you know, talking, oh, whatever Puff Daddy sings a putt. He's like, yeah, I was so worried. But then, my, you know, B.I.G. came down, talked to me, calmed me down. Basically this idea that Biggie Smalls is still looking after Puff Daddy because like that's his best friend. Several times Biggie's, uh, Biggie Smalls is alluded to as being Puffy's best friend in later music. Uh, this upsets a lot of people, for instance, like Biggie Smalls' real friends and also uh, Biggie's mom. Biggie's mom's like, yeah, they were friends, but not best friends. It was a business relationship. But shiny suit rap and, and Puff Daddy really serve as kind of like what's going to be going into the new millennium. We'll be talking about that more next class. Uh, this has been a very long lecture. However, I do need to talk about one more thing before we end it. One more connection, and that's Mike Tyson. Uh, when I was thinking about all this, I was trying to think about the best parallel to the East Coast West Coast uh, gangster, you know, gangster rap wars. And honestly, Mike Tyson was the one who came up with it. Uh, Mike Tyson, as we've already talked about, overlaps quite a bit with the story. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Mike Tyson, you should be. He's a he's an amazing boxer. He is a legitimately amazing boxer. Like Mike Tyson, for pure boxing ability. Like if we're not getting into the mind games of somebody like Ali. Like Ali clearly had better ring psychology than pretty much anybody else. But if we're talking about like sheer boxing ability, also they're completely different weight classes, so they would never fight each other. But if we're talking about like sheer boxing ability, just sheer raw talent. Uh, Mike Tyson is it. Mike Tyson might be one of the best raw boxers ever to exist, period, end of discussion. Um, he, he, he's slightly undersized, I mean, for his height. He, he's not the tallest dude on the planet, but he's, like, super strong, super ripped, uh, known for his punching power and just sheer knockout ability. Like, Mike Tyson was known for being, like, the guy who will knock your ass out quick. He will knock you out so quick, put you on the ground, uh, several of his fights go only one round. Uh, becomes the cha- I believe he's still the youngest boxing heavyweight champ ever. Not heavyweight champ, but champ ever. Uh, big time boxer. Like he will knock you out every time. Uh, for much of his career, he was viewed as unbeatable. Uh, he is beaten in 1989 by Buster Douglas, which makes him kind of lose a little bit of his mystique as being unbeatable. Uh, mainly because uh, Mike Tyson didn't take Buster Douglas too seriously. Uh, Buster Douglas is viewed as like being too slow, too fat, too old, and Mike Tyson's like this ridiculously in shape young kid who's Mike Tyson. Buster Douglas does beat him, which is a surprise. Uh, however, in 1991, at the height of its popularity, uh, Mike Tyson is arrested for the rape of an 18-year-old um, young lady who is the, let me get this right, she is Miss Black Rhode Island. She's like a beauty queen, Black Rhode Island. Uh, he claimed it was consensual, but there's a lot of evidence that said possibly otherwise. Uh, it eventually goes down to sexual assault, not rape. Uh, he is sentenced uh, sexual assault, actually very akin to what Tupac goes to jail for. Um, he's ultimately sentenced to four years in prison in 1992 after some hemming and hawing about how long his sentence is going to be. Uh, he serves about three years of it before his early release. Um, after his er- early release, he goes... Oh, yeah, if you go over one side there, he's getting arrested. 
Uh, once he gets released, uh, he goes on a whole series of comeback fights. There's a whole ton of comeback fights. Where basically Mike Tyson is fighting, quote-unquote, tomato cans. Just nobodies. Uh, basically, you know, don't throw him back into the deep end. Uh, just give him some people to fight. You know, let somebody fight him. Um, get, get some fights. These are going to be huge on pay-per-view. Because here's the thing. Tyson was already viewed as a bad man. Like a bad dude. Like a tough hombre you don't mess with. And now he's an ex-con. Uh, he's an ex-con, you know. And there's a weird appeal in that for some people. Some people are like, wow, that, that brings up his toughness. You know, the system messed him over. That sort of thing. So now he's come out. He's paid his dues to society. And now he's going to come out. He's, he's the baddest man, but now he's got, a, he's, not, he's got an arrest record. And I can't iterate. At this time period. I mean, I know nowadays y'all think of Mike Tyson as kind of a funny guy with a face tattoo who who does talk shows and junk. Um, for a time, Mike Tyson was like the scariest man in America. And there used to be something called the Mike Tyson principle when it came to news stories. That like any news story, no matter how negative about Mike Tyson, had like a sliver of plausibility, if that makes sense. Like if there's a story like, you know, Mike Tyson punches old lady, a good portion of the country would believe it. They'd be like, you know what? That's plausible. Mike Tyson was viewed as the baddest man on the planet, but he was also viewed as a hero for some people, and particularly a lot of black men, who are like, wow, this is a black man who got, you know, done by the system, but nobody can stop him. And I and like I said, a lot of people watch these Tyson fights either because they admire him or it's just like he's a threat. You know, he's a scary threat person. Uh, remember, in this time period, this is even before he's fought Holyfield, which we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, for instance, the fight that Tupac was watching in Las Vegas, the night that he got killed, was Tyson versus uh, Sheldon. Tyson versus Sheldon. Sheldon was another heavyweight champ of a different boxing promotion. Um, it was viewed as a, uh, <laughs> a fix because it only lasted one round. It's actually one of the shortest champion bouts ever. It was like a minute and a half. Uh, Mike Tyson knocked out Sheldon. Uh, some people said that it fixed it in. Maybe it was a staged fight. Uh, to be fair, though, the fight that everybody wanted to see was Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield. Evander Holyfield was the guy who became like champ in Mike Tyson's absence. Uh, they were going to be fighting only two months after the Sheldon fight, so this is kind of seen as a warm-up fight for the big fight. Still a very big fight. And, and what I want you to think about here is that there is a lot of overlap between gangster rap and Mike Tyson. A lot of overlap. If you cover one side, you're going to see him and Tupac together. You'll see him and Suge Knight together. You'll see the, the final pictures of them together on Fight Night. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between the appeal and also the threat of gangster rap and Mike Tyson. There's this idea that, you know, he's a bad man. He's a bad man, but if they do anything too bad, they get punished. You know, they can talk about doing bad stuff, beating up people, but then again, when they do something bad like sexual assault or whatever, they have to be punished. And like I mentioned, you know, no story about Mike Tyson, no matter how negative, was viewed as unrealistic. Uh, same thing with Suge Knight and a lot of these gangster rap guys. Like, there was a cottage industry of maybe these people are so scary, that's the appeal in it. So we're going to end with a teaser for next class. For next class, here's the teaser. As, as we leave everything, here are the threads I want you to think about. Dr. Dre has left. He's formed his own record label. He's decided he's going to make another Chronic album, but he also wants to find some new artists. 
shiny soup rat is taking over the planet. But there's also fear they won't be able to have uh, another rat beef like this. Like, you know, because of the violence of the East Coast, West Coast feud, with two of their, you know, the generals, quote-unquote, killed, will we be able to have rat beefs again? Will we be able to have battles again? But without the bloodshed. Furthermore, Snoop Dogg wants out of Def Jam, but he doesn't know anybody who's willing to negotiate with Snoop for, with Suge for his release. And finally, the death of Biggie Smalls has left a void in New York. Who's going to come back to be the quote-unquote king of New York? And if there's a battle over the king of New York, can they have it without bloodshed? But that's what we're talking about next class. Next class, towards the new millennium, Snoop's new record label, the, the beef, and also Aftermath. All right, talk to you all later. Dr. Tully for what's probably my longest lecture ever. Bye-bye. <laughs>